0: The following is part of the a1-wrestling.com podcast family.
1: Hello, wrestling fans. Thank you for tuning in to this inaugural episode of Classic Wrestling Memories, part of the latest member of the a1-wrestling.com podcast family. I'm your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, and I've been looking forward to doing this show for a very long time, Uh, really shortly after I started getting into podcasting, this, this show had been in the back of my head. As the name implies, Classic Wrestling Memories, we are talking old school, pro wrestling, matches, stories angles talent you name it and i want to introduce to you my co-host for the foreseeable future here on classic wrestling memories crazy train jonathan bullock all aboard ladies
2: and gentlemen you know mama told me this day was going to come and it is here and i'm so excited Uh, when i got into podcasting about two years ago thanks to seth and a few of our friends at the a1 podcast this was always the kind of podcast i wanted to do there's tons of podcasts out there ladies and gentlemen about the current wrestling but what I grew up on, what made me want to become a wrestler, that's what we're going to talk about. I think me and Seth kind of agree. We don't want to do anything beyond the Attitude Era. And we're probably not even going to talk about the Attitude Era that much. So if that's what you're listening for, that's this might not be the podcast for you. But we will talk some a little bit Attitude Era because it is important. But we're going to go all the way back to the pioneer days of Gotch and Hackenschmidt. We're going to talk Lou Thez in the 1940s and 50s and the foundation of the NWA. We're going to talk the territories we're going to talk Turner by and Crockett and the, and you know, the wars, but the early wars between the WWF and WCW. That's what we want to talk about. The wrestling that we like and the stuff that we weren't there for, but we've read about, and we hope you enjoy the ride. We hope to have a lot of great guests. We're going to have uh, as, as many guests as my little black book and Seth's little black book will allow us to have that will be knowledgeable. I think what's going to separate us is we are actually going to have guests that were, journalists covering these events a- actual talents involved in some of the, uh, in some of these angles and events so that worked these territories and i think that's kind of what's going to make this unique so if that's what you want wrestling fans that's what we're, we plan to give you and since this is the inaugural show we kind of brainstormed where do we want to start and i think we agree one of the best places to start would be what was many people consider the first major super card in professional wrestling that would be Starcade 1983 a flair for the gold what do you think, Seth?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, to my knowledge, the first Super Show, and because there were talent from multiple territories in, in one event here. And I know, I know Jim Crockett Promotions promoted it, and it was booked by George Scott, but you had talent from different territories coming in to kind of cap off their, their major angles in this event.
2: Mm-hmm. That's true. And it it, it was, it it was unique in that, you know, Dusty, I think it's a law, it's a misnomer. Dusty booked this show, but Dusty did. Dusty came up with the idea for Starcade, and he was coming in as the booker. So he was involved somewhat in the creative, but the real, like you said, it was booked mostly by George Scott and Dory Funk Jr. Was really who booked this show and George and Jim Crockett was the promoter who promoted it, but you had talent from Florida. You had talent from uh, Puerto Rico on this show and, this wasn't the days of pay-per-view. This was the days of closed circuit. And for those that aren't familiar with that, that, would, that was basically uh, a satellite feed to a building in the area uh, that, they, that the Crockett's ran. Their territory was the Carolinas, North of South Carolina, and Virginia, and Maryland. And you could go to the building, and there would be a big you know, movie screen there, and you would essentially watch a, a live feed of that. Uh, the technology either wasn't wasn't affordable enough or hadn't been delved into enough for pay-per-view. So this is even before pay-per-view. Uh, but that is why, even though there were closed-circuit locations all over the Carolinas and Virginia and Maryland, there were a few in Florida and Puerto Rico because those territories were represented as well. Um, but as we go on in this show, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start, I think, with what led up to this, because I think you need to know where you, where you came from to know to where you are. And we're going to finish off this with a special guest we've had here on the podcast before, uh, Mr. Mike Mooneyham, who was uh, a legendary and Hall of Fame sports journalist, recently retired from the Charleston Post Courier, who was covering Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling at this time in 1983. And I think he'll give a unique insight uh, and into the three biggest matches on the show and the card as a whole. and and. I would be lying if I didn't say, you know, I was a fan at this point. I lived in the Carolinas. I went to star 83 at a close circuit location. Um, I, I was a, you know, 13, 14 year old boy when all these angles and and the, the show itself went down, we're going to talk about. And then I grew up and became a pro wrestler and I met and became friends with several of the talents that were involved in this show. And, and Seth, what, 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 again, what's your thoughts and memories on this? Cause you weren't really watching wrestling at this point, were you? So when did you get into starcade 83, a Flare for the gold?
1: The first time I saw it, I think it was on one of the major streaming pages, like a YouTube or a daily motion uh, a little bit uh-huh. before the WWE network came out. Now the version that I watched in prep for this was on the WWE network. So, you know, maybe some of the music is different and such, but the, the, obviously the video quality is much better. But I didn't start really watching wrestling regularly until high school. I'd seen some matches here and there, but I didn't really Mm -hmm. know when when it came on. So, you know, to kind of add what you're talking about to this perspective, we'll have your perspective as a worker and as a fan of that era. We'll have Mike Mooneyham's viewpoint as a journalist and somebody who's been watching and covering wrestling before us. And then me, kind of the Johnny come lately, who's now watching this Mm -hmm. with 30 years later eyes, so to speak.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I know you said you only watched it, you know, in the last few years the first time you started watching wrestling early nineties, how long into your fandom and regular viewing of wrestling, did you hear rumors about this great show and some of the matches on it? Was it a
1: long or, 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 uh, it, it, it it had been a few years, uh, because I just seem to remember the mentioning, um, one, one of the WCW programs that, you know, Rick Ric Flair headlined the original starcade and it was probably the build to one of the mid nineties starcades. Ah, ah, okay. Okay.
2: Well, I, I think, you know, like we said, we need to probably need to go back and start where we, you know, you need to know where you came from. Uh, let's look at the landscape of wrestling at that point. You had the territory system was still in vogue. Vince was just really beginning to get his ideas of going national. He just recently bought the company from his father and, uh, the, the crown jewel, uh, at that point for the NWA wasn't really the Carolinas. It was, it was, Texas was hot. Dallas was hot with the Freebirds and Von Erichs viewed. Um, Florida had had some hot runs with, with, you know, D- uh, Dusty and Kevin Sullivan, but the Carolinas was kind of down. Um, but that being said, Ric Flair was, you know, the top star here in, in the Carolinas and he'd had one world title run in nineteen eighty one that did not go over well, uh, and he wasn't in the territory a lot because he was out defending the title uh, and, and you know, I think that when the word came down that Flair was going to get a second chance at the belt uh was when Jim Crockett jr. kind of started going ah okay i can i can I can do something and build to this you know big show because he had already been in talks with Dusty about coming in and taking over the book. And like we said just a little while ago, Dusty had this idea of a of a big, you know, annual event, and uh, this was on Thanksgiving night 1983. For the fans that uh, newer fans, they don't understand. In the territory days, the holidays, Easter, Christmas, and Thanksgiving were some of your, and Fourth of July, quite frankly, were some of your biggest uh, shows of the year uh, historically. Think about it. I mean, everybody's spent time with their family. It's getting late in the day. You probably don't have to go to work the next day. You're looking for something to do. This is before cable and the internet. Well, why not go to the local wrestling show? And they were always some of the biggest shows in every territory every year. So I think, you know, that was why I think Crockett's thinking Thanksgiving is, is a time. But I don't know if he was sure that he was going to be able to have a building that he could fill up and make it, you know, from a business standpoint, uh, feasible to run a show like this, that would be the crowning achievement for Ric Flair for his guy in his second title run. So, you know, uh, leading up to this in the, in the late 82, early 83 with Flair gone, defending his world title, they built a hot angle that th- was over their version of the world tag team titles who were being held by a heel Sergeant Slaughter and a heel Don Cronodal. And, we're being challenged by you know the babyface team of Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat, and all that feud cu- culminated in a huge show on March twelfth of nineteen eighty-three at the Greensboro Coliseum. Now, when I say Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina, and you're if you're not a wrestling fan, Seth, what does that mean to you?
1: <laughs> well, that is one of the bigger arenas in the Greensboro area, and I've. I I spent a little bit of time in in Greensboro, uh, Mm -hmm. but I was at what once was called the Bilo Center, which I'm assuming was a a larger venue, right?
2: It is now, and that's in Greenville, where I live, which is about 180 miles south of there. Mm -hmm. Um, Greensboro, like I said, the the, the Mid-Atlantic territory, called Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, that was the Crockett promotion, was essentially Maryland, Virginia, and both the Carolinas. And I get questions from people, even people who were fans uh, in other territories, the territory days. Why Greensboro? Real simple. It was the biggest building in the territory. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean if, you're looking to fill, if you're looking to get as many, you know, as JR likes to say, a butt every 18 inches, you want the building that can hold the most butts for 18 inches, don't you? <laughs>
1: right, right. You know, because I'm kind of spoiled up here because we got the Rosemont Horizon. There's the Allstate Arena. There's Soldier Field. UIC
2: uh, but, Pavilion. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you got know. all... Wrigley Field, Comiskey Park—you've got all kinds of stuff. Plain and simple, that's why Greensboro was chosen. And it, Greensboro was a building that was so big the Crockett's couldn't run it every week, like they did smaller venues like the Township Auditorium in Columbia, South Carolina, or uh, you know uh, the Scope in Norfolk, Virginia, or Dorton Arena in Raleigh, or the old the old Independence Hall in Charlotte, or the Charlotte Coliseum. These all the, seated between. Mm, twelve fifteen hundred to maybe ten thousand you know mm-hmm. but but greensboro coliseum seated for wrestling a little bit over sixteen thousand people and it was probably most famously known in the area and outside the area it was the host every year for the acc basketball tournament uh the, the college basketball tournament of the uh, the atlantic coast conference that's the conference of duke in north carolina and virginia and north carolina state so big deal i mean those are major you know national powerhouses in basketball but that was really all the, the Greensboro Coliseum was known for. And then the monthly wrestling show. And I don't know if Crockett thought he was going to be able to fill it up uh, because even when they ran it once a month, they didn't always fill it up. But then they had this match on March 12th and the buildup to it was so well done that they sold out. And, and I mean, they, they, they backed up the, the interstate Th- people couldn't get into the building. They couldn't even get to the building because the exit was backed up a mile on I-85 Think about that for a second, Seth. Is that is do you have those kinds of? I mean, I know you have bad traffic in Chicago, but could you imagine traffic like that for a wrestling event in Chicago?
1: Not for a wrestling event, no. Uh, no, know, no, no. May, maybe the, the closest thing I could think of is, you know, like when the Bulls were the world champions or when the Cubs became the world champions. You know, that's probably right, the closest right. I could
2: relate to. Right, right. And so it's it's, you know, when that happened in March, I think Crockett was like, aha. You know, as a businessman, maybe I can do this if I have a hot enough angle on top to fill it. And he, like I said, he knew Flair was going to get the title back, uh, uh, or, you know, because Harley had, had just recently defeated Flair for the title again. And, uh, F- Harley had agreed to do the honors and, 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 and give the belt back on Flair. And this would be a way to kick off his second world title reign in a way that he was not happy with, you know, the start of his first title reign. Um, I, I think I, I pointed you to YouTube to a really good video package put together called The Road to Greensboro. You got a mm-hmm. chance to watch some of that and to build up to where we were getting to. What did you think of some of those old uh, videos?
1: Well, it's good tag team wrestling. And, you know, I've said before, probably my favorite pro wrestling match is just a standard tag team match. And you mm-hmm. also see a young Jake Roberts and a young Rick Rude uh, in separate matches, but as baby faces. Mm-hmm. And that's really about as far as I got was uh, two or three of those tag team matches. Uh, but
2: How funny was it to see Sergeant Slaughter in, in, in a suit? <laughs> if, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing that's different about the heiress, too, that if you were a champion, you dressed like it. The
1: only suit I've seen Sergeant Slaughter wear is a camouflage suit. You know, Right, right.
2: But you know, they—I think they do a really good job at putting the world tag team t- titles over as a big deal and and, and stuff. And, and I, I'm a, I'm I'm guessing you're probably going to put a link to that YouTube channel on, on the in the in the show notes on on the on the website, so our fans can and listeners can right. watch that if they want. Right
1: at a1-wrestling.com and at uh, classicwrestlingmemories.com.
2: Mm-hmm because I know everybody can go on the network or on YouTube and find Starcade 83 but this might be a nice little package to watch to get a kind of a feel for what the territory was like at the time, uh what the angles were like, what the wrestlers were like and and, and kind of like I said it was the, the 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 event that allowed Jim Crockett to realize I can do something like Starcade. So, uh you know, we suggest you watch that, but you know, once that happened and uh, sarge left and he went up north to work for vince and flair had dropped the title so he came back in the territory um and there were several angles that ran all summer long that were to be blown off or, or ended here at stark 883 on thanksgiving night um i'm sure you're sitting there looking at, at a list of, the, of all the matches seth mm-hmm. why don't we just start with each match and 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 I, if I, what I can remember, I'll tell you a little bit of what the storyline was going into that match. Mm-hmm. So to give people an idea of, of the, what the build-up was.
1: Yeah, the show kicked off with the assassins. Uh, well, I forget the name of assassin two, but obviously assassin one was Jody Hamilton. Uh, they right. beat
2: the original. The original assassin two was Tom Renesto. but I believe at this point Tom had retired, and, and I believe that's Hercule Hernandez was assassin two at that point.
1: Okay, uh, but, but they beat. Rufus R. Freight Train Jones and Bugsy McGraw, when uh-huh. Assassin, Assassin One rolled up McGraw from behind, um, mm-hmm. this was my introduction to Bugsy McGraw, uh, and mm-hmm. he definitely looked like a tough guy. Now he was he was a charismatic babyface, but he he looked yeah, like a guy. That, the yeah, a, a, absolutely. And the sudden roll up finish may seem stupid now, but this was 35 years ago. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and also I think more the territory because the the announcers kind of put it over that way is it was from behind, you know, it, it wasn't a man to man roll up. It it was a, right. He, he saw the moment to grab from behind and and get the win. And he, and he took it.
2: Yeah. Now this is unusual for, for modern fans, but not all matches on big shows back then had angles. this was one that didn't have an angle coming to it. They just didn't. It was the assassins were established, known heels in the territory Rufus R. Jones and Bugsy McGraw were two of the most uh, charismatic and well-liked character baby faces in the territory. So that's all it was, you know, just a, a warm-up match. Uh, for trivia's sake, Bugsy McGraw, and you didn't see his full ring entrance because of where the tape starts on the network, he was full-on comedy. He used to come in the ring with uh, like a trench coat on and these goggles and pro- an and, and, and aviator cap with a propeller on top. He was a straight comedy guy. And I would be lying if I didn't say I stole some of his mannerisms for my character. <laughs> I, I will openly admit I stole some from Bugsy McGraw. Not a great worker, but charismatic. Rufus, same thing can be said about Rufus. Was kind of a think think JYD light. I think is a good description of of, of Rufus. You know, mm-hmm. that probably was your introduction to Rufus too, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, did you steal the knee shake thing that both these guys did, and Dusty would do too? No,
2: no, the Duke and Job. No, I, I didn't do that. I didn't do that but you remember when he did the propeller spot where he like spun his arm around and then gave him the big punch. Mm-hmm. I stole that. I yeah. stole that. Uh, well, uh, and another trivia note, uh, you'll notice at the beginning of this match and he's announced Rufus R Jones is the mid Atlantic champion, which is essentially the, 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 the C title in the territory. The, the top title was the U S title. The secondary title was the TV title. And then the tertiary title would have been the mid Atlantic championship. That belt is not the one you would see years later at other Starcades. That belt, long story we'll cover on another podcast, I'm sure when we talk about Jim Crockett Promotions, uh, was held at the end by a man named Buzz Tyler, who left the business and was the champion at the time and left with the belt. Don't ask me how but some indie promoter around here wound up with that belt, and it, that was his his main champion. And I actually held that physical belt as their champion for a while. So that's a little trivia sake, personal note for me. Anytime I get to see that belt, I kind of smile. Hey, I I remember when I used to carry that belt in my bag. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, it's like I said, no build up for that. Just, just, it's a startup match. What was the Mm -hmm. second match?
1: Uh, Before we got to the second match, we did get Tony Schiavone in the babyface locker room. He was basically just plugging the rest of the show. And I know this was Tony's first show for Crockett, but Mm -hmm. good gravy. He looked young and thin. You know, thin, <laughs>
2: no mustache. He hadn't grown the mustache yet. I mean, he he said on his podcast that he grew the mustache essentially because Jim Jimmy Crockett told him, uh, "Can you grow a mustache? We don't want you to have a full beard because David's got a beard, but uh, you look a little too young." <laughs> you mm-hmm. So, I mean, and as as a fan of the sports aspect, I'm betting you really liked this this idea of going in the locker rooms and these candid interviews mm-hmm. that Shivani was doing. Right.
1: That, that was the other thing I was going to bring up, uh, watching it with a newer set of eyes. Uh, that's the type of thing that, if done right, I think could be and would make a promotion look differently. You know, yeah. now nowadays, everything's it's, it's an in-ring promo or they have somebody uh, in a the stage, back.
2: backstage and vignette. I can't stand those. Right. Where it's like, why are they doing this? I mean, they did not see the camera filming them. This isn't anything like that. Right.
1: You know, it genuinely looked like he was privileged enough to get backstage and interview the wrestlers as they go to and come from their matches. And you saw Piper and Flair and uh, Steamboat j- just kind of shaking hands and shooting the breeze. You, you almost kind
2: of wanted to hear what they were saying. And then and it looked st- like it at one point, like maybe Flair and, and Piper were were kind of working the camera a little bit, like they were going over strategy for their matches and mm-hmm. stuff, didn't it? Yeah. yeah.
1: And then and then suddenly charlie brown from out of town walks by you know, still wearing the the mush mouth uh, hat over his <laughs> eyes you know
2: yeah we, 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 we'll get to that angle a little that's a fun one <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but anyway uh, the second match was kevin sullivan and mark lewin beating johnny weaver and scott mcgee one thing worth note of this uh mark lewin was 46 years old and, and i would not incredible, didn't he <laughs> yes absolutely now was this about the time he was he was the purple haze or did that come later
0: yes
2: Yes, this is one of those examples you were talking about of other territories. Eddie Graham had lent them out. Uh, the finish came, I think, when, when the referee got distracted and both Gary Hart, who was the, the, the heels manager, from the outside held one arm and Mark Lewin held another arm and or no, Sullivan held one arm and, and Lewin hit Johnny Weaver with a, a knee in the back or something, didn't he?
1: Right, yeah, with the exception of uh, Gary Hart holding the guy's arm. By today's mm-hmm. standards... It was a clean finish, but again, it was behind the, the referee's back, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's why it got the heat. It got was it, it wasn't right. a man to man hit your finisher and win.
2: Yeah, and you gotta you gotta understand this. Uh, Johnny Weaver was a local guy. Okay, Johnny Weaver was a huge star in the Carolinas uh, in the '60s and, and early '70s uh, before uh, George Scott came in and took over the book and brought in all the singles. He, him and a guy named George Becker were the top tag team in the Carolinas, So he was majorly over almost as a nostalgia act, even at this point, you know, he was doing a, a lot of announcing on on their weekly television. Uh, and he was, he got the sleeper hold over big time in this, in this territory. Everybody knew the sleeper was a finisher because Johnny Weaver used it, the Weaver lock, you know, and, uh, so I think this was an example of using other talent from another territory to give it that big feel, but you still put the one local guy on there so that, you know, the, the fans knew. And it wasn't hard to look at the teams to know who was supposed to be booed and who was supposed to be cheered. But the, the end of the match, uh, obviously you can tell this is 1983 and it's the South, ends with, uh, you know, essentially uh, – Gary Hart taking a half bump and then pulling a foreign object out of his boot, and them just waylaying Scott McGee,
3: mm-hmm. and I
2: mean it got pretty bloody pretty fast, didn't it?
1: Absolutely, and I don't know if it was intentional, if if it's part of the story, but mm-hmm. what clicked in my brain when I saw this, uh, it, you know, the heels were still prepared. You know, it, it's like oh, yeah. they, they got their win and they're still. Stomping on Weaver because they're jerks. Right. They already they already won the match, but they're going to stomp on the guy after the match anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, McGee comes in, rallies around, and that's when Gary Hart pulls out the the spike out of his boot. So it's mm-hmm. like, had the match not gone their way, they were prepared to cheat already.
2: You got to understand that that's the spike gimmick for Kevin Sullivan and Gary Hart that was that was part of their normal stick in Florida, and because there were closed caption or or, or sorry closed caption closed circuit <clears throat> locations in Florida the ending to this match was essentially to progress a storyline along in that territory, you know, of the dastardly heel manager of Gary Hart, bringing his men in and jumping the young upstart baby face, Scott McGee. That's all it was. So here's, here's Eddie Graham lending out his talent, but also getting, you know, a nod from, from Jim Crockett to go ahead. You know, your your fans are going to see this too. go ahead and do a storyline here at the end, you know? Mm. So, you know, maximizing your minutes, I guess, as Jim Ross would say, right? Yeah.
1: But you know who came across like a badass in this uh, is Angelo Mosca because he ran out to stick up for the heroes, got spiked in his arm to the point of bleeding profusely, still Mm -hmm. managed to fend off the villains and get McGee out of the ring safely, and he still had to referee a match later on. And he also cut a fantastic babyface promo later on. And I'm like, wow. Oh, God, yes. Wrestling needs more heroes like Angelo Mosca.
2: (laughs) Just full disclosure here, uh, wrestling fans, I legitimately watch... Starkade 83, 84, 85, and 86 about once a month each. I legitimately set 12 hours of my time. They're all about three hours long of my time aside every month. But I haven't watched Starrcade 83 since probably about Christmas. So it's about three months. But I did watch it in preparation for that. And when I saw the promo you're talking about, I was going, oh, Seth is going to love this promo. This is right up his alley. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten how good that promo was. But you know, Angelo Mosca, for a little bit of history, since this is Classic Wrestling Memories, Angelo Mosca had been a monster heel in this territory for a long time. He was a big guy who was mostly a star in Florida and and in the Northeast, but was a heel here. And when they would bring Andre in as the special attraction that he was used as at that point in time in the early 80s, Angelo Mosca was almost always the heel who faced him. So that should give you an idea of what his uh perception was in the fans eyes here in the carolinas and he had recently turned babyface during all this stuff in the summertime and the stuff we're talking about that the angles that led up to you know uh starrcade 83 so that might put a little bit of different perspective on it for you but uh yeah this once again not not no storyline coming into this match but at the end it was still a story it was an angle they were allowed to use time for an angle you know, at the end for another territory, which I think is unique in and of itself, almost reminiscent, you know, fast forward 20 years. to when Vince was allowing Paul to do some ECW angles on WWF television, you know, Mm -hmm. or when WCW and WWF let Jim Cornette bring the heavenly bodies and, and, and the rock and rolls in to fight for smoky mountain titles on their pay-per-views kind of a similar thing. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely.
2: Gr- groundbreaking in more ways than we think unless you go
1: back and watch it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the lost arts that we saw we, uh, in this, Barbara Clary interviewing fans. Now, oh, yeah. to an extent, I can kind of see why they might not do that now because the fans might try to get themselves over on TV. But, right. you know, that, it, it just, it, it was such a throwback. Well, not just because it's 35 years ago, but, you know, <laughs> The clothes, some, the hair. <laughs> yeah, somebody going around a fan saying, hey, what what are you looking forward to? Who do you think is going to win? How far did you travel? Mm-hmm.
2: And Barbara Clary, who I don't remember them using much beyond this, and we'll talk more about her later in the buildup of this show. She kind of had the, the the early 80s Renee Young vibe, didn't she? Yeah,
1: yeah. She, she looked like she genuinely liked being there.
2: And was it just attractive lady, you know, cute, you know, Nana, the girl next door, right? Right,
1: right absolutely. Uh, Tony Schiavone was interviewing Harley Race. And I think I told you off mic, um, right when the camera goes to Tony, And Harley's there in his plaid suit, and he just has his death stare. You know, like, don't mess with me. Don't joke with me. Don't even look at me wrong. You know?
2: Well, you got to think that Tony's got to be nervous as hell because Mm -hmm. he grew up a wrestling fan in this territory. He's from a small town in Virginia. Because, you know, I mean, and I can speak from personal experience. Harley Race is an intimidating guy. But, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about many times on the A1 podcast, um, besides the the idea of this giving it a, a real sports feel, even Vince in the 80s pr- presented this idea that, you know, all the baby faces hung out together outside of wrestling. You know, they would have picnics and go on boating trips together. And the same could be said of the heels. And and seeing the Briscoes and Greg Valentine and, and Harley sitting there together, that kind of reinforced that idea in the fans' minds. Did it for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's another lost art in the business, don't you? Mm-hmm. This idea of I mean, I, I, I hate this whole idea of every man stands alone, but, but I mean, had Vince kind of publicly said that before now that that's his mentality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And another thing, they didn't really point it out, but it's something I had noticed that, uh, huh. Uh, in the, in the same room, you had the NWA champion, the U S champion and the NWA world tag team champions all in the same frame. Right. And nowadays, exactly. nowadays, all, all four of those guys are just being some comedy segment backstage on raw.
2: Right. And of course, Stephanie would come in and de- emasculate all of them and get herself over. But I digress, ladies and gentlemen. This is about classic wrestling. not. <laughs> Did we mention why we wanted to do this
3: podcast?
1: <laughs> Should be blatantly apparent now. But, but uh, Carlos Colon beat Abdullah the Butcher via disqualification mm-hmm. when Hugo Savinovich interfered. And mm-hmm. this is just so dastardly heel 101 because abdullah has a 200 pound weight advantage and 10 seconds into the match he's already cheating <laughs>
2: yes well i don't i think i've I've gone on record here on the on on a1 podcast of how much i love and respect abby so you know uh and this would be a good time to bring up the fact that we get the announce team here in my book one of the greatest announce teams ever of gordon Solie and bob cobble mm-hmm. and they did such a great job during this match of getting you to understand. And this is another example, by the way, of uh, you know, another territory getting guys on the card. This was, of course, Carlos Pur- and Puerto Rico were, yeah, yeah. the Caribbean, the entire okay. Caribbean, but based out of Puerto Rico, the WWC, the World Wrestling Council. And Carlos was the top babyface. Abby was a top heel. This was a feud that quite frankly never ended. <laughs> and had been going on for several years. But the story that was the angle being into this was that it becomes so bloody and out of control that the nation, the island, you know, nation of Puerto Rico, or the American territory, the government had basically banned this match from happening in Puerto Rico. So they had to come to Greensboro to, to continue this feud, which I thought was kind of really cool. And I thought Gordon and Bob Cottle did a great job of putting that over. Did, did you catch that in their announcing?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely, and it's also worth mentioning. I mean, obviously, Carlos Colon is a legend in his, in his own right. He's a WWE Hall of Famer
2: and controversial. Uh, but that's for another topic. We'll, we'll. I'm sure at some point, ladies and gentlemen, we will have an episode about the tragic death of Bruiser Brody. But I digress. And, but
1: if you're a modern fan listening to this and you, you want to learn some history, uh, Carlos is the uncle of the shining stars, Primo and Epico. And Carlito. He's Carlito's father,
3: yes. Yep.
2: Um, I often wondered, you know, when I had forgotten this until I watched the match again, and I think, and you know, I, I always think this every time I see this match, with Ric Flair being in the, in the main event, what the hell was Carlos Colon thinking, putting somebody in a figure four in the third match? <laughs> I mean, that's one of the first things I was taught when I got in the business is, you don't do the finisher of the guy in the main event if you're in the third match, you know. But, uh, you know, that's some of the heat Carlos, I think, has always had in the business. But Carlos was a huge star in Puerto Rico. Get, make no bones about it, you know, and that was his finisher. And I've heard rumors, uh, and I, I, you know, I never asked Abby to to verify this because he probably would have tried to work me anyways. God love him, but that that Carlos had convinced the fans in Puerto Rico on their television that they were the main event of Star King. <laughs> <laughs> not Flair and Harley. But you know, I mean, but you know, it, it's it's that was the territory days. I mean, you didn't see wrestling outside of your territory, so your local stars they were the biggest stars in the wrestling world as far as you were concerned. So I get it, you know, but anyway.
1: Yeah. And I read about Carlos in the after mag. So I knew he was a legend. uh, Yeah. Even going back to the nineties, but I remember he was in a Royal rumble. I want to say in the early nineties and he comes Mm -hmm. out and and I hear gorilla gorilla monsoon say, look at a smile on this youngster. And, Even as a teenage mark, I was like, uh, he ain't much younger than you, Gorilla. (laughs) I mean, he's,
2: what, 50-something at this point? I mean, in this match, this is 1983, and his hairline was already starting to recede. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, he was one of those guys that, you know, he gigged a lot, and his forehead shows at this match, it looks like meatloaf. (laughs) Right, right. What was the over-under, you think, on how long it was going to take Abby to get busted open in this match? Because they only went for about five minutes.
1: Yeah, I was about to say...
2: 30 to 60 seconds, maybe.
1: Right. Right. Minute or two. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's Abdul the Butcher. It was a shtick. But anyway. Yeah.
1: We, we got the aforementioned promo from Angela Mosca you know, where he stuck up for the guy that's se- now seeking metal- medical attention behind him. Uh, but and he looks getting- like
2: a dead man covered in blood. <laughs> right. When right, they pan but- the camera out, I'm like, good God, that looks like something <laughs> from a horror movie. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but he believes in Ric Flair and, you know, rah, rah, Ric Flair. And like I said, Wrestling needs more heroes like like Angela Mosca, but
2: and you are beginning to see a pattern at this point with this promo and with the you know the Barbara Clary interviews. They're really pushing the main event. You can see that Jim Crockett was really keyed on on making this a big deal for Ric Flair. For God's sake,s he named the show the, the subtitle of the show was "A Flair for the Gold." You know, but right, I, right. Yeah, we'll get to that later.
3: Yeah,
1: this was not <laughs> pay per view. This was not a WWE Network event, of course. Uh, this is the type of event that. You know, somebody may, I mean, I don't, I don't know if closed circuit was paid or, or, or what, but it could be something if you're at the, the, uh, say a bar or, or whatever, you Mm -hmm. might get up and leave. If it starts to bore you, you know,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah, closed circuit, the way it worked was you would go to the venue that was going to have it. And you bought a ticket. just like, if you were going to a live house show and then you just went there and you gave your ticket. And, and I'm trying to remember the price wasn't that much different because I, back then in 83 at the Greenville Memorial auditorium we had our weekly house shows on Mondays and I believe ringside was either eight or $10 and uh, general admission, which was the upper bowl was six or $8. I can't remember when the price change happened. There was a price change at one point where it went up a whole $2 <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for both tickets. And I think like kids under five got in free, you know, with the idea that they would sit in their parents' lap anyway. So they weren't taking up a seat, you know, but I don't think it was much more expensive. I think it might've been $12. So mm-hmm. think about that. You
1: know, <laughs> right. probably the closest thing to compare it to by by modern standards is, is a movie theater. You know,
2: right, right, and and the more I turn where I saw it, it's also trivia it's where I walked when I graduated from high school because all the high schools here in Greenville County used to walk there for your graduation. It was originally building was originally built to be the basketball arena for Furman University, the small university here in town that uh, is where Xavier Woods did his uh, undergraduate work uh, for to bring in a modern. Thing. but uh it was an auditorium I and mean, not only was it essentially set up for basketball it also had a stage to the back of the arena and so when they did wrestling that part was curtained off and they just put the, you know the chairs around but for starcade they essentially brought up a, a, a movie size screen out that they dropped down from the ceiling over the stage area and we sat like in like you would in your school auditorium in, in chairs you know and they just watched mm-hmm. the screen but anyway
1: Second-to-last match we'll talk about before we bring in Mike Mooneyham. Uh, Bob Orton Jr., that's Randy's father, and Dick Slater Mm -hmm. beat Wahoo McDaniel and Mark Youngblood when Orton pinned Youngblood with the superplex. And it says something when they introduced Mark Youngblood. Boy, you heard the women cheer for him.
2: Yeah, that was a a precursor to what Hoot and Punky and Hoot were going to get a few years later in this territory, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I've said it before and I've said it again. Uh, you know, wrestling crowds have turned into a sausage fest back in these days. And you see it in, in, in the and, you know, when you look in the crowd, it's families, it's old ladies, and it's a lot of women. I didn't say girls. I said women mm-hmm. and, and some, you know, attractive women. Uh, and they didn't like they were there with, with their boyfriends either, did it?
1: <laughs> right, right. They look like they came of their own free will.
2: Yeah. Later on, Barbara, Barbara Clary will interview two uh, very attractive by you know, eighty standards. Ladies dressed up nice, a uh, uh, attractive black woman, attract white woman, and they didn't. They weren't boyfriends, now were they? <laughs> right. <laughs> and they looked very excited to be seeing. I mean, think about it. It's a bunch of good looking guys wearing a, not many clothes. That's. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to to be you know, vulgar or anything, but it is what it is. There is a a sexuality to the professor. It always has been. Always mm-hmm. has been. Yeah. There's a reason why Tommy Rich looking the way he looked. You know, it's laughable to us nowadays. There's a reason why he was so over in Georgia in the early eighties. You know, he had that boy next door look and, you know, and he bleed like a stuck pig. And those poor girls didn't want to see that cute little boy get beat up. Yeah. But anyway,
1: <laughs> now by my count, uh, we got three, maybe four. I'm, I'm trying to think of guys that worked the first starcade and the first mania. Cause we got, Bob uh, Orton, jr. Valentine, Bob Orton jr. Valentine and Piper, Valentine and Piper. Um, Steamboat? Does Steamboat work the first? I don't think Steamboat was was at the first Mania. Uh, okay. I'd have to I'd uh-huh. have to double check. But hey, uh, so if, had- yeah, if, if we're wrong on anything, let us know. Uh, you know, the the Twitter is A1W Podcast. The Facebook is A1 Wrestling, and I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling dot com. And I can be reached at CrazyTrain underscore JB on Twitter. Now, Youngblood
2: was the one that took the fall, but you notice Wahoo was the the one that got injured, right? Right, that was a great post-match spot. I thought where they basically you know, hung uh, Wahoo on the ring apron, and and I think it was Bob came off the top rope to the floor with a knee drop on his on his arm as it was draped over the ring apron. Didn't it? Didn't mm-hmm. wasn't that? Wasn't the? the now you have to understand, Wahoo was like Johnny Weaver, a legend in this area, and was huge. Or you heard the pop Wahoo got when they introduced him. I mean, it was huge. Right. Uh, and so there was a story. This is when you're getting into the matches now that had angles. This angle leading into this, <laughs> Jay Youngblood, I'm sorry, Mark Youngblood, was essentially you know they did was the baby brother of of Jay. Shoot, so you've got the you, you, your top babyface tag team. You got one of their half of that tag team's kid brother, and Wahoo is this legendary babyface of the territory, who are mad and going to take up the honor of Ric Flair the top baby face in the territory and take out the guys that injured them. And we'll get to that angle when we get to the Flair Harley match. Um, But that was what the whole buildup was of this match. You know, it was, it was a revenge match. It was a grudge match essentially uh, against Dick Slater and Bob Orton. Um, And, and, you know, I mean, think about that too. We, we, we're only four matches in and we've had Kevin Sullivan, Mark Lewin, the assassins of Wahoo McDaniel, Bob Orton, uh, uh, Dick Slater, Carlos, Carlos Colon. Colon. I mean, this is uh, that's some heavy hit. This is these are heavy hitters, and we're only four matches into this card, you know. So anyway, most,
1: most of these guys could headline shows on their own, and and big shows yes.
2: too. And, and I mean, already we've already named what a, a half a dozen Hall of Famers.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, yeah. I, that that was the main storyline in this one was just you know, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier that. You bought into this idea as a fan back then that all the baby faces hung out together,
1: you know. And you also notice these early matches, basically the first half of the show, the Mm -hmm. heels were the ones getting the upper hand. I mean, technically Carlos won, but he won by disqualification and still got beat down afterwards.
2: And it was and it was a thing that that that's something that's different. Not only from today and back then, but also from the territories as opposed to how Vince ran his territory, which made him different than anybody. His father ran the territory that way. It was all about the heat. It was all about the heat. Because everything was... The money back then, up until this point, and this is the show that changed that, all your money was off the gate at live events, at house shows. So you put the heat on the television, so the fans would pay money to see the babyface get their revenge at the house shows.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know? And, um, but, but, but anyway, you know, it was, uh, I, I watched this match and I had forgotten how awesomely good were Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater in their prime. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bob Orton, the guy's like what? Six, four, six, five. He's chiseled out of stone. He's good looking, but he's got that arrogance about it and moves so well. And b- it's like, you look at Randy now, you know? And he's about as far into his career now as Bob was into his career then. And you realize where Randy got it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like the the apple didn't far fall from the, and the similar build, the tall, lean athletic build, you know? And, and it's just like, I know Randy gets a lot of, a lot of, of guff from the current fans, but Randy is so smooth in the ring. It's like almost effortless to that young man, you know? And well, Bob shows this back in 1883. It's almost like, he, he almost the same as for you and me just to get up and walk out of bed in the morning. You know what I'm saying?
1: Right. Yeah. We're not negative to all modern wrestling here. I mean, both of us are big Randy Orton fans.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know that probably catches us a lot of heat. You can send your 10,000 word blog post to us, (laughs) but it is what it is. I mean, the kid's an athlete. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And it's, you see his dad in his prime and you understand where he learned it, you know? And this is a great example of how good Bob Orton could be when he was on,
1: you know? Uh, the last match we'll talk about before we take a break here. Charlie Brown from out of town, who was <laughs> s- Jimmy Valiant. <laughs> uh, he, he pinned Kabuki. Uh, I guess Kabuki didn't take the damn money. <laughs> One of the things that I noticed right out of the gate, because it, it fits, because my understanding is the whole story is Jimmy Valiant lost a Loser leaves Town match.
2: Yes, in August. And this is November, so...
1: Yeah, so he, he came back with the, the uh, uh, snow cap pulled over his eyes, you know, like, like something I've had, Albert. And mm-hmm. it's just it's so blatantly obvious that it's Jimmy Valiant. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know...
2: It's this angle that's been done how many times? Yeah, but how many times... It, well, heck, I mean, Vince just did it about 10 years ago with Hulk and Mr. America, remember, about 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago? So, I mean, this is an angle that's been done a gazillion times, but it's still fun. You know the whole idea of everybody in the building knowing who it really is, and then the heel pleading to the authority figures, "Come on!" But the authority figures had to be unbiased to go, "Well, you know, he got a wrestler license, it's Charlie Brown from out of town." So, <laughs> yeah. you know, another more
1: modern example of that uh, uh-huh. TNA with with uh, Joseph Park, where it was so yes. blatantly yes. obvious that he was <laughs> Abyss, and he he didn't yeah. even know he, he was
2: Abyss, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what i loved about this angle was i mean i think the, fir- the first time i ever saw this angle was a few years earlier with uh dusty as the midnight rider in in you know in florida losing a loser to leave town matches to, to kevin sullivan but he wore the full the full old school kind of assassin style of mask you know that ties in the back and full face you know dick byer spoiler that kind of mask mm-hmm. well part of what made boogie woogie man jimmy valiant was the beard that huge awesome Santa Claus blonde beard he had. Mm-hmm. So they just did the half mask. You like, you were talking about the like skull cap. So he still could see the yeah. full beard. You know, <laughs> I just thought that was great. Let's be. Jimmy Valiant is one of those guys, just the way he moved in the ring and he threw punches and bumped and sold. He, you know, he did this sell that I loved at this day, which i once again, full disclosure. I stole. <laughs> That palsy seizure cell he does he does several times this match. You know what I'm talking about? Where he'll he'll get hit in the back of the head and he'll just like shake like he's having convulsions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and so it's like, come on, Ray Charles can see this. (laughs) This is Jimmy Valiant. So that was part of the fun of it. And this match does not hold up well by modern standards. It's basically Jimmy has him in a sleeper for the first five minutes, and then he has Jimmy in a in a claw for the next. Five minutes, you know, but <laughs> it was fun for what it was. I thought, didn't you? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it fit given that this was a feud, no collared elbow tie up. You know, it was a fight.
2: Yeah, they just went straight to start. And and, and another interesting thing that they bring up: the television title was at stake at this at, on on <clears throat> in this match. Here's the thing: the television title, like I said earlier, was the secondary title. It was a vi- essentially invented with the concept being. You didn't always get to see the main champion on television because the idea from a business standpoint was you wanted to, your fans to pay to go see that at the, the live events. But championships meant something, so they created a title that would always be defended on television. And to, to play into that concept, television title matches always had only a 15 minute time limit because that's about as long as a segment goes. It's a quarter hour, you know, on television. Because, you know, back then a common finish was a, was a 60 minute time limit draw for a world title match or for a U.S. title match. So in this match, there was no time limit. But the first 15 minutes of the match, the title was going to be on the line. But the whole match, the mask was going to be on the line. And if Charlie Brown lost the mask, he would have to leave. He would be uh, banned from wrestling for a year, I think, was the stipulation going into it. So, um, you know, that's kind of a unique concept, I think, where the belt's only on on the line for the first 15 minutes. But if you understood how we had been educated as fans in this area, it made total sense. Did you find that a little unusual when they laid that stipulation out at the beginning of the match? Or did you get it?
1: uh, I I got it because I remember the days, the the latter days of the TV title in the early 90s were—
2: you're talking or, like, like regal era when he was holding yeah, that a lot, or
1: or when Arn, Arn Anderson had it, where I think right. the matches were like it was like 10 minute time limits.
2: But it was always supposed to be the whole concept being it's something that's meant to be shown on a television show, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, nowadays we get world title matches every week on Raw, right? So, yeah. but, uh, but but the revenue streams are different now. But anyway, right? You know, it is it, it, a fun match, and it's you know, God bless. Gary Hart, he's no longer with us. It, it's another great example of how good I think Gary Hart was in this match, don't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, a manager, criminally underrated. You know, um, when when, when he got drop kicked in the earlier match, the you know, the tag match, the second match, they got a pop. But when, when Jimmy finally got a hold of him, there was a huge pop. And, and you have seen now, I know you're a big fan of Memphis. Mm-hmm. You got an idea of how over Jimmy Valiant was from the reaction the crowd gave him in this match, in this territory, didn't you? oh yeah they love jimmy we love jimmy jimmy i have said it before and i'll say it. i'm gonna steal steve austin's quote stone cold said that man put a lot of salt and pepper on his steak <laughs> just, i mean he had he had charisma I, I i truly feel uh he had charisma on the levels of a dusty roads or, or a rock he had that kind of charisma do you agree with that that's right, daddy. Oh, yeah. Boogie Boogie <laughs>
0: Man. Oh, oh, yeah, all right. All right. We're going to have a match. All right. All right. <laughs> Cause the Boogie Land. Yeah. To rock the world. The Boogie Man love everybody. The Boogie Man love you, and he love you, and he love you.
1: <laughs> he has one of the best magazine covers. I think you know the one I'm talking about. It's a classic pro wrestling illustrated.
2: The, 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 the cry for me one? Oh, no, no okay. where
1: he's on the cover. And the caption is the boogie woogie man's message to his fans: It's time for you to boogie woogie.
3: Yes, I don't know
1: (laughs) if I could get a poster out of that. I I would buy that.
2: Uh, You know, there was a there was a question that came up on on one of Jim Cornette's podcasts a few weeks ago, and and they asked, "Do you think Boogie would have worked in you know the '80s national expansion events?" And you know, Cornette, like myself and other people have talked about the the, the diametrically opposed idea to the presentation of the territories and what we're talking about here at Starcade 83 and in the Crockett territories to what Vince was doing at the time. But as he pointed out, with Jimmy Valiant and his charisma and his shtick and his presentation, he's probably the only guy (laughs) in that era, other than maybe Dusty, who could have worked as both himself in the territories in the NWA and then taking the exact same Mac up North to Vince's cartoon world. And it would have worked just as well. You know, J Y D is probably the only, probably the only other, those are the three J Y D because <laughs> he did work dusty and he did work later. And, and, and Valiant, those are the three I think,
1: don't you? <laughs> yeah. Cause uh, boogie did have a run, uh, uh, with, with Vince, but it was with Vince senior, right?
2: Right. With Vince senior. And it was as handsome, Jimmy Valiant with his brother, you know, luscious Johnny. Okay, and he was a manager slash wrestler. And if you go back and watch those, and I think some of that's on some of the the older stuff on the network, he was a dastardly heel. The, you know, the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant was not like that at all. You know, he was a fun loving guy. He was a, he was a street people. You know, he was he was just as over top as dust. He was a common man, and I mean that was his big thing. i I'm, I'm, I'm you know he was the the man from New York City, and he's the only guy alive. That can make Manhattan transfers, the man from, boy from New York City, cool, because <laughs> that was his entrance music. <laughs> and I never thought, you know, me, the biggest Iron Maiden fan you'll ever meet, will get excited to hear that song. But I do because it m- brings me fond memories of Jimmy Page. <laughs> I do, I do, I
0: ooh ooh kitty. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that should say
1: something. We've just spent the last ten minutes now putting over. Jimmy Valiant. <laughs>
2: well, Jimmy's one of those guys I've got to share a locker room a lot with. And he's just, Jimmy is the nicest guy you could ever meet. I mean, he's a sweetheart of a man. He's and, one and, of the few guys,
1: and, and we've talked about before, off mic at least, that the best gimmicks are extensions of the person. Uh-huh. Whereas uh, Jimmy Valiant's one of those guys, he's probably almost exactly the opposite of the flamboyant boogie woogie man. But that right. camera that, that camera light goes on. And he he's boogie woogie man.
2: Oh yeah, but I mean, when he walks in the locker room, and we've talked about that before, the etiquette in the locker room says, you know, when you walk in, you go around and you shake everybody's hand, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter where you fall in the card, that's just etiquette. Well, you would think, and sometimes with the, with the name wrestlers on indie shows, they don't always do that. They they kind of big star you, right? Not boogie, boogie always. Hey brother, good to see you, brother. Good to see you. I mean, it's just it's a sweet, warm handshake and a hug and. You know, and you can see it in his eyes, even though he's much skinnier now because he's had half of his stomach surgically removed because he had stomach cancer. He's a cancer survivor. And uh, but still, he walks in a locker room and he just brightens it up. You know, it's like, hey, it's boogie. You know, you're excited to see him and he can't he can't do anything anymore because he's old and he's 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 like I said, he's, he's a cancer survivor. But my God, the crowd still buys him even in 2000. I mean, I worked the show with him towards the end of my career in the late 2000s. And the crowd still went crazy for his stuff. He didn't take one bump. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's, he's just entertaining. And, and But he does, he walks into a locker room and he'll go around the whole circle and just say, hey, brother, good to see you. And he'll always, you know, give me a big hug. You got that teddy bear still, brother? I mean, I love Boogie. I can't <laughs> say enough positive things about Boogie. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. that really
1: covers it as far as the matches go. I mean, the, the rest was right. uh, interviews. We got another Shivani interview with Harley Race this time. He was in his gear, ready to go. Uh, Barbara mm-hmm. Clary interviewed Dusty, who I think just, probably just cut the same promo we cut earlier in the mm-hmm. show, but, you, but we couldn't hear him because of the, the uh, mm-hmm. technical difficulties. But that pretty much covers it for the, the undercard of the show, unless there's anything else you wanted to add.
2: No, no. I think we've, we, 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 we will save the rest for the main event. But, you know, I'm sitting here thinking before we go to a break, why don't you cue? I'm pretty sure you got queued up. Why don't you play for the listeners as we go out to break? What I think is one of the greatest promos of all time That was one of the promos cut leading up to the feud for the main event between Harley Race and Ric Flair. I think that's a great way to go to break, don't you? Absolutely.
0: I didn't think that there was anything on the face of the earth that would ever push me to do what I'm going to do right now. But, Flair, you have pushed me as far as you're going to push. Right here is $25,000. And it goes to any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair from wrestling. Take a look at it. Paul Jones. You and your whole entourage of people. Dick Slater. Kabuki. The names, the list. It goes on and on. Any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair for me has got $25,000 cash, I'll give it to any living human being. Jack Briscoe, you are world's champion. You took the belt from me. You're the man, you can do it. It's here for you. Come and get it, please. Somebody take the damn money. I want rid of flair. You never know who's going to show up on the A1 Podcast. What's up, all you stars and stars? This is former WWE Diva Maria Tonight. I'm Victor Leonti of House of Hardcore. This is Jason Kincaid, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast. Pardon the interruption. Aaron Bauer from AIW here. This is Dylan Sosmore, the leader of Exceptional Exotic, the fastest-rousing group in the national wrestling alliance. What's up, everybody? This is the morning star, William Huckabee. This is Mr. Saturday Night Michael Barrett. This is Allison Kay, and you are listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast on a1-wrestling.com. Hey everybody, this is Jock Sampson, the Appalachian Outlaw, long. you're listening to the A1 Podcast, baby. Get tall. Ladies and gentlemen, this is No Plane Train Iceberg, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast. And if you're not, get your ass on the internet and listen to it, because you're missing out on a lot of good shit. Hi, this is Gregory Iron from TWO. You are listening the A1 Wrestling Podcast where wrestling and pop culture collide. My name is Super Cop Dick Justice, and you are listening to the A1 Podcast where pop culture and wrestling collide. This is the only podcast that's Jimmy Rave approved. If you're looking for a gaming-oriented podcast, then look no further than You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of enthusiasts as they talk the news and video games achievements and of course the gripe of the week. That's all at youjustgotfrag.com, part of the A1 Wrestling.com podcast family.
2: Well, folks, we're we're back and uh, you know, on the other side of the break, you got to hear, like we talked about, what we thought was one of the greatest promos ever. And it's, you know, a running gag here. I mean, um, I, I, before we talk about that, the one thing we forgot to bring up during that section you were talking about, Seth, where there was the, the you know, they were doing interviews. They do interview Dusty Rhodes at one point. Uh, Barb LeClary does, and they're having sound problems. You remember the, the segment I'm talking about, Seth? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, once again, folks, this is 1983. It's the first time they've ever done anything like this. Those things are to be expected. I thought Gordon Soling and Bob Coddle handled it like pros, but. Am I wrong in saying that even though you couldn't hear Dusty, just seeing him, his mannerisms, as he cuts a promo is better than 90% of the promos we saw on raw just this past week. <laughs> it's more charismatic. Yeah. yeah. Even though you can't hear him,
1: you know what he's saying.
2: <laughs> and you're going, oh my God, Dusty was so awesome. But anyway, you know, um, before we, 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 call Mike and bring on, I mean, I think we need to talk about the big angle that led into the main event that we played that promo for, um, you You joke about it all the time. what is it as a fan who came back to this later on that that you loved about this angle that led into you know the cage match and th- that promo and everything everything about the angle
1: well, I mean, it is one of the greatest promos of all time. Uh, I really can't speak too much about the uh, all the storylines because i I haven't seen a lot of the mm-hmm. weekly t v but mm-hmm. I mean, I think anybody with a reasonable brain that would cheer for the heroes he's pu- putting up that bounty on rick flair it's just like what you mean
2: you can't take you can't take care of him yourself right exactly and you know of course eventually later on and i think some of this is on the network too or is on youtube i'm sure uh dick slater and bob orton who had been presented as baby faces and friends of Flair, do take the money mm-hmm. and and spike paul drive flair so they do an injury angle leading into the match and um, I thought it was one of the best injury angles I've ever seen, you know, where, you know, I, I mean, a Spike Paul drivers a what well, that's a transition spot in a tag match nowadays. But back then mm-hmm. it put Ric Flair on the shelf for like two, three months, you know, and, and they did this great job where they 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 interviewed Rick in his home in a neck brace, all modeling that he was his career was over, you know, and I can tell you as a fan in this territory, we really believed it. We thought Ric Flair's career was over, you know, and that and. It was just it was so well done, but the the real cherry on top of the Sunday leading into this was when he did that great comeback, where it looked like Slater and Orton were going to do it again, the Spike Paul driver to some you know enhancement guy, a carpenter, and Flair runs out with the deck brace on, but a metal baseball bat. Have you seen that segment before?
1: No, actually I haven't, From, but I'm sure it's easy enough oh, to find. It,
2: oh, it was on Crockett Television, and it's awesome. It is absolutely awesome. I believe that was taped at Gaffney High School, which is a town about halfway between Greenville and Charlotte. In fact, the first family that Barbara Clary interviews on the, uh, you know, talking to some of the fans were from Gaffney, if you remember, the big family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think that was where that that angle was shot. That's when they stopped doing the studio television and moved to doing live, you know, live house shows for their television. But flair cuts one of, and this is saying a lot, one of the best flair promos I've ever heard. And I know saying saying that about Ric Flair is saying a lot, where he rips the neck brace off and he talks like, "Yeah, the neck's a little sore, but it's feeling better every day." You got a partner? Well, I got one right here, and he holds the bat up. I mean, it's just incredible. It's it's the pissed off. I'm coming to get you, Harley. And when I'm done with you, I'm coming to get you, Orton and Slater. Flair promo you'll ever hear. You know, mm-hmm. and well worth the time to you know stick at your Google machine, folks, and look it up uh, before you watch. Uh, StarCade 83. And, and maybe, you know, if you want to stop the podcast right now and go find it and watch it, you'll see what we're talking about. It's just, just great, great classic stuff. It is the epitome of what the angles were like in the Crockett promotion if you grew up in the 70s and 80s in the Carolinas or Virginia. But with that, in due, we're going to get to the main event and talk about the three biggest matches. So, Mike, uh, uh, sorry, Seth, uh, are you going to try to get Mr. Mike Mooneyham on the phone for us? Yep, yep. We'll talk to Mike Mooneyham right after this.
1: Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 Podcast... Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at GeekvilleRadio.com. Welcome back, wrestling fans. This is the main event, the main segment of our discussion here on Starcade 83, the inaugural Starcade, Flair for the Gold. We're going to be talking the last three matches that were kind of the basically took up the entire latter half of the show. And Train and I don't have to do it by ourselves. As we said at the top of the show, we have a guest joining us. This is a man who's been covering pro wrestling and sports for over 40 years, a co-author of Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, and perhaps most importantly, a member of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Classic Wrestling Memories, Mr. Mike Mooneyham.
4: Hey, I'm uh, happy to be on with you guys today.
1: Yeah, we are tickled to death to have you with us, Mike. So, as as far as the show goes, I mean, I think... These last three matches, the, the dog collar match, the, the tag title match, and, of course, the, the main event in the, in the cage, these are probably the the three most memorable matches. And I think all three matches, I mean, all these years later, they, I think they still hold up today. What do you think?
4: Yeah, they absolutely do. You know, this, this event was, uh, was huge. We had never seen anything quite like this. Um, uh, Dusty Rhodes kind of came up with the idea and the concept for first arcade but uh this was just a, a massive endeavor on so many levels um you know the uh, the initial idea was to have a bunch of champions on a show a big venue and you know closed circuit which was uh, uh pretty revolutionary at that time and you know as it turns out in hindsight it would sort of be the precursor for wrestlemania um but yeah it, Eight matches, you know, not not a lot of matches on this show, but the, the final three matches were definitely, uh, like you said, they'll stand the test of time. Um, Flair against Race for the title, uh, Steamboat and Youngblood against the Briscoe Brothers, and, uh, uh, you know, that dog-collar match between Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine, which fans still talk about today.
2: Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. I think I remember Wahoo telling me at some point, that the pressure from the NWA guys, they could kind of feel that, that Vince was, was wanting to go national. And this was kind of maybe almost a preemptive strike with the, yeah. with the, with the concept of a big car. Is, is that kind of how you perceived it, too, from the boys back then?
4: Yeah, they saw the, uh, they saw the business changing. And, uh, you know, Jim Crockett wanted to, be, uh, he wanted to be there at the forefront when this happened. And this was a way to do it. Um, it was sort of a risky deal. Um, because, you know, this closed circuit, this was, this was sort of new in the business and, you know, a lot of money was put into it and a lot of resources,
3: Right. But they were determined
4: to make it work. And, um, uh, the card they had was in this tremendous lineup. Um, and it was, it was a risk, but as it turned out, it was a very successful one. They made a lot of money on this show and, uh, you know, it led to many future Starcade events.
2: Yeah, we had mentioned earlier, uh, I looked up some numbers. I don't think it was quite a, a sellout, but I, I also brought up, and you will remember this, the, there was a snowstorm in the area that, that's, that Thanksgiving, which our listeners know, because I bring it up all the time, being from here in South Carolina, when we get yeah. snow in the Carolinas, we pretty much just shut down the state. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah that, that's true.
2: But they still, if I remember the stories I've heard of how it was backed up there on eighty five coming into Greensboro, and they literally had to get on the radio and tell the fans, "Don't come to the building. There's no more tickets." It, it, did you hear those stories, or did you go to the event live, or, or, did, or did you just watch it well, down there in Charleston? I
4: was, you know, I was watching in Charleston. Uh, they had it at, um, it, if I remember correctly, it was a Gilead Auditorium. Okay, and um, it was it was pretty packed in that building. Mm. Um, but yeah, there was some bad weather, and you know, um, you know when they did that famous match also with uh, Kronodle and Sarge um, against Steamboat and, and Youngblood.
2: About six months um, prior, uh, yeah, March, yeah, I think that it was.
4: was uh, yeah, I'll never forget. I mean, it was a massive buildup on the interstate. You know, people could not even get to the arena in time, <laughs> and that's. Yeah. You don't see that these days no, uh, no. cars backing up on the interstate, trying to get into a wrestling show.
2: <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I remember Tully, Tully Blanchard told me once his first Starcade course will be next year at 84. And he's coming from Texas, you know, working for his dad. And as he's driving yep. to the building, he sees a station wagon packed full of, of you know, a whole family with a sign <laughs> yeah. on the, on the window that says Starcade or bus. And he goes, Oh, look, I'm in a different <laughs> world. You know, <laughs> that's how big Starcade was in this area to us fans. Yeah, I went to it Greenville was... Memorial Auditorium. They had closed circuit there as well, yeah. uh, and, and it was almost full. I could probably about probably about twelve hundred people, <laughs> which was about full for that building. Um, yeah. And if, like I said, you think about this with snow on the ground—that's a big yeah. deal in this part of the world. And I think the gate was like uh, a half a million dollars, which you yeah, extrapolate clock, clock, that up from. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Mike. Yeah,
4: no, no, no. Close to it, and um, yeah, you kind of wonder what the response would have been had you know had the weather been. Yeah. Decent. Um,
1: I actually have the numbers in front of me. This is courtesy Wikipedia. Uh, Fifteen thousand four hundred forty-seven with a gate mm-hmm. of five hundred grand, which comes out to thirty to thirty-two dollars per person. When you think about that in
4: 1983, unheard right. of. Yeah, unheard <laughs> of. And and I yeah. think that's when they knew that hey, we can make a lot of money off of this. the TV. Mm-hmm. Closed circuit pay per view is the way to go, and you know, for you know, in the previous years, it had been you know TV promoted the 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 house shows, and that was a big deal. Now you were seeing house shows promoting the um, TV and the closed circuit and pay per view events. I mean, it was yeah. it was it was going to be the wave of the future, and and they got on board. But of course, you know, we we know what happened. Eventually, Vince did the same, and he did it a little bit better.
2: Right, right. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the the first of the big matches, the dog collar match. Um, I've actually had a chance to talk to Greg Valentine in locker rooms about this. And, you know, (laughs) I told him, I said, brother, that that like it was, you know, Roddy was working a little snug and he goes, I was giving it back. That was a (laughs) that match is still, I think, even amongst the boys today in Vince's locker room is legendary for how innovative and how stiff it really was. What do you remember of that?
4: Well, I remember. Um the talk back then and, and, and Roddy and, and Greg were both on board with this and you know mm. Greg was as snug as anyone in the business. He he, he no doubt he worked stiff, you know. <laughs> but they they uh they both agreed that they were gonna make this look as good as possible. Um they wanted this match. They saw this match as something big. I mean, they mm-hmm. they had a premonition that this was gonna be a match that would be remembered for years, and they both went in there with the intention of of really having a brutal match and, and brutal it was. And uh, like I said earlier, people still talk about, it. people always talk about that match. So, I mean, uh, that match had all the ingredients of, you know, what was a big uh, grudge match back then. Blood mm-hmm. and the, psycholo- the psychology behind the match was, was excellent. I mean, they worked that oh, yeah. uh, kind of match to a T. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, Roddy got a, busted eardrum and it affected his hearing for the rest of his life and um yeah that was about as brutal as you could get
2: yeah greg greg said what made it worse was he told me that it was so successful they get you know they get back to the locker room and and jim jr's sitting there and he goes man that was great y'all want to take it around the circuit and he's like, oh God, we gotta do this again every night.
3: <laughs> and he's like,
2: he's of course it's the boss, so you say yes. But he's thinking to himself as he's agreeing, going, uh, he's telling me, he goes, God, brother, that was twenty years ago, and I'm still feeling it. You know, I mean, <laughs> I said, oh, I'm That's sure, funny. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember, and you, you could, my memory's fuzzy because like I said I was just a kid and a fan at the yeah, time. Maybe yeah. You remember a little bit better, Mike. I remember they're doing an angle building up to this on the television here in the Crockett territory. Something where I, I like—he had Roddy on the floor at a house show or something, and he opened a chair up and essentially put the end of the chair in Piper's ear and then sat down on the chair. Am I remembering that yeah. right? Or
4: yeah, no, that—that's kind of like I remembered as well. They—they yeah. uh, they did a, you know, they did that angle leading up to it, and yeah, he—he he, he did he did something like that. Yeah, and
2: I—I I, I just think, like you said, with the psychology, I don't think fans can wrap in today's world of flippy flops can wrap their head around, you know. Selling an ear, and then of course you had the you know the great of all time, in my opinion, Gordon Solley, you know, putting this over on the commentary. Oh,
4: yeah, yeah makes you we, understand
2: be, how he's dizzy, his equilibrium's messed up. This is incredible.
4: Yeah, yeah, we'd be remiss not to mention Gordon putting putting that yeah. match over. Um, and and there was nobody, uh, no announcer in the business better than Gordon Solley putting over angles and. Right, uh, putting over legitimate aspects of the business, and um right. yeah, you know, it's kind of like uh, Jim Ross did with uh, WWE years later. Mm-hmm. Um, even though a match might be good, it, it, it was made um, sort of momentous for all time when mm-hmm. Jim Ross did it. Same thing with Gordon. You know, with with the soundtrack of Gordon solely, matches mm-hmm. were made bigger. Um, and they would always be remembered Gordon. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, a Pier six brawl. (laughs) 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 You know, and I would think I also would be remiss if we didn't mention his partner and this was Bob Cottle. And I know that doesn't mean a lot to people outside the Carolinas here, but I'm sure you can attest to my praises of Bob Cottle was that guy for our listeners that didn't grow up in this area. He just came across like your your the uncle or the granddad you wanted. Just this loving gentleman yeah. and he never talked down to the fans. No, nope. he, he was like Walter Cronkite to us. We, everything he said we believed. You know, he, he was really, such a he
4: he really was. Um Bob was sort of that uh, that soothing voice behind the mm-hmm. mic.
3: Um
4: yeah, you're right. He never got too upset. He, he treated the the business with respect. He treated his fans with respect, and I think they appreciated that. When you heard uh, when you heard Bob Cottle come on live every Saturday, I mean, you you knew you were in for a treat.
2: Yeah, and fortunately for me, I got to meet him when when I got into my career. He was as nice as I could ever have at hoped for as a young kid looking up to him. You know, just just the sweetest man. I, I couldn't say enough nice things about Bob Cottle. But anyway. Yeah. Yep. You know, when you when you talk about the the historical perspective of this match, and I know Cornette will argue with me about the Tupelo concession stand brawl in '79, but I th- and I'm not saying that that match wasn't legendary. I think this was probably the next one of the other early matches that will what become uh, in the '90s an agitator known as hardcore. Would you agree with that, Mike?
4: Yeah, it was definitely hardcore. That's for sure, and it was hardcore seen on a on a on a on a big level. You know, we right. had. Regional matches that were certainly hardcore
3: mm-hmm. classics
4: along the way for years, but um, you know this was seen by a major audience, and right. um, and that that match was as hardcore as you'll you'll get. The psychology mm-hmm. again was just uh, off the charts, and um, I was, I, know, I two masters.
2: I can visually remember that that you know the spot where Roddy ri- wraps the chain around Greg's f- whole face. Around oh, his yeah. mouth and
3: into Rex his mouth, yeah. Himself.
2: And then, then, then he does it to Piper across Piper's eyes, and, and the visual is just, and the way those guys sold, I, just an incredible, incredible match. And I think that that's one of those matches that a hundred years from now, when we're all long gone, wrestling fans are still going to be looking up that match and wanting it's to see it. it I think.
4: It is, and and, and I bet that that's one of the most watched matches on YouTube, you know, for oh, yeah. for fans who were there and fans who were not and just wanted to see a classic match. Um, that's a match that even a, a current fan, you know, with a whole different philosophy about the business, could, could pop in the uh, uh, DVD, whatever they use, and, and watch that match and say, gee, this is really neat.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There are four things that I wanted to bring up, just being the fan watching this. Long after it happened, I think some amateur historians and I—I I put myself in that category. Emphasis on amateur historians. Uh, yeah. The match—the match was not for the title. It was an unsanctioned match. Therefore, the title could yep. not change hands. Uh, yep. on, on a lighter note, did they mention who the guys were in the mutual corners? Because one of the guys backing up Valentine, who also had the bleached hair, looked like singer actor Paul Williams. You know, Little Enos from, <laughs> from Smoking the Bandit. You know.
4: You know, I do remember those two guys, and offhand, I can't think of who it was, um, but I know the guy you're talking about with the, the bleach blonde hair, The um, yeah. is that is that the man you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey. yeah.
1: Almost <laughs> expecting him to whip out the money, saying, I'd like to kick his ass just once.
3: <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes, I've
1: successfully made a Smoking the Bandit reference in a wrestling podcast.
2: At <laughs> uh, the same time era, so that's okay. Smoking the Bandit is almost as popular as wrestling in the South, so that's all right, you know? Yeah, yeah it is. For,
3: it's up there. <laughs> it is.
2: What were the other thoughts that you had, Seth, as a guy coming back and walking? Well,
1: uh, you distinctly see two ladies in the crowd, because they were doing crowd shots, which they do probably too much now, but... Uh, you distinctly see two young ladies in the crowd, basically jumping up and down, yelling "Get him," which you don't see these days. And there was the spot you were talking about—the uh, uh, chaining him up by the by the neck and by the the, the mouth and all that. I saw Piper whip Valentine. It looked like it was the back of the head with a chain, and that just made me wince, you know, even all these years <laughs> later watching it.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, that I go was back,
4: back a long ways with with those chain matches. Yeah. Um, they, they were, they were brutal. They were like, you know, uh, really big main events that you didn't want to miss. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. Of
2: course, Ivan Koloff, after his successful run in New York was a huge heel here in the Carolinas. I can't remember how many chain matches I saw him in live as a kid growing up. And they were always, yeah. Like one, I said, they of, were something to be, something to behold. That's for sure. One of, one of
4: the, one of the, uh, one of the early practitioners, I guess you'd call it of, of the Russian chain match was, uh the great Malenko Boris Malenko.
3: Yeah. Professor And, Malenko.
4: uh, I saw, you know, I saw a whole bunch of chain matches during the sixties. Uh, and you know, that was sort of the, the height of the cold war. And, right. uh, there, it was also an era of true believers. You know, everyone believed Boris Malenko was actually from Moscow, Russia, and he hated all Americans. And, uh, you know, you talk about heat. I don't think I ever saw heat like that. Um, and I uh, saw Malenko on a series of chain matches, just bloodbaths and with guys like um, Eddie Graham in Florida, uh, Wahoo McDaniel, George Scott down here. I mean, you know, very, very brutal, very bloody.
2: Well, if we go to the next match, it's a complete, maybe 180 from this bloodbath. And, and what I think is one of the best technical tag matches I've ever seen. And that would be the, the world tag team title matches between Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat as the challengers against the champions, the Briscoe brothers. Um, What, what thought, what thoughts come to your mind when you think of this match, Mike?
4: Well, I think uh, uh, for the top guys in the business, it could, they could really go. And, uh, you know, especially um, Steamboat and Jack Briscoe. I mean, you just don't get any better than that. Um, That was, that was just, those were classic matches. And, you know, it, uh, of course, what made it better when the Briscoe brothers turned and, uh, mm-hmm. uh you know, and you had, uh, you, you just had all of the elements of a classic, um, uh, of a classic tag team match.
2: I remember in the build up for that. So, you know, coming off the heels of what we talked about earlier with the whole, you know the big match, the big cage match between Slaughter and Cronodal against Youngblood and Steamboat, and then winning the belts yeah. back. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that the Briscoes going into that in the spring were baby faces. and then they turned heel on yep. Steamboat and 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 Youngblood to set this up. And I remember they 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 they, t- they they traded the titles back two or three times. But I was fortunate enough as a young fan to see one of those title changes here in Greenville. They did one at a house show here. Uh, okay. So so that was that was the and I'm trying to remember which one. Oh god. I think it was when Briscoe's won the title. No, 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 no. Yeah. They had I think it was when Jay and, and Ricky won it back and then they Jack and Jerry might have won them again somewhere else. But mm-hmm. you know, uh I know fans often complain about quick title changes nowadays. Right. Um that was one where they actually did some even back then, you know, because I remember those titles switching two or three times on the way to Starcade. Am I am I wrong in remembering it that way?
4: No, there were a couple of switches. Um and 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 then this one, of course, uh, uh, Steamboat and, and Youngblood, you know, won the belts again. But um, right, this
1: began yeah, their they, fifth they reign, if I recall correctly. Yep. Something like that. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I remember the the, the storyline coming in was Jack and Jerry were were forced by the board, the NWA board, to to, to defend the titles because they were you know playing the the swarmy heels who were. It was beneath them to come to some little poduck town like Greensboro. They wanted to be in a big city like St. Louis or something. Do you remember right. that angle?
4: <laughs> I do. I, I yeah. do remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But, but it, I, you know, this match for me personally uh, was one that meant a lot to me because there's one spot in the middle and I, it, where I think it was Jerry puts Steamboat in a short arm scissors, a move you uh-huh. rarely see anymore. Uh-huh. I loved that move so much, and it had such an indelible impression on me. Fast forward from 1983 to 1994, when I started training to wrestle, and I told my trainers, "I want to learn that hold. <laughs> I wanted to incorporate <laughs> that move into my repertoire because I thought it looked so cool." Uh-huh. And and, uh-huh. and then and then Steamboat, who always is you know always been in phenomenal shape, even today, he looks fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, uh, you know, he did the big power out where he he basically picked up Jerry and then, you know, f- fell back mm-hmm. with him to break the hold.
1: That was one of the notes I I was going to add to this. Was that that power up onto his shoulder and and yeah, backdrop?
2: Yeah. You don't see that kind of psychology because it's so fast paced nowadays. But the drama of that is, oh, my goodness, he's going to break his arm. And then he powers out. and And unless you've actually picked a guy up like that, I don't think you have a full appreciation for how much strength that takes. I don't care if he's helping you out or not. There's no wires, okay? And and oh, yeah. Jerry Briscoe's a solid 220, you know? I mean, yeah. so, yeah. 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 I just think, you know, I, I've told some kids that I've helped train. That's a match I pointed to. You want to know psychology, you want to understand scientific and holds, go watch that match. That's one I'll point them towards. I, I'm, I'm assuming both of you guys would be in agreement with that assessment?
3: Think, yeah, absolutely.
1: I think I can put it this way. This was a classic example of the heroes outwrestling the villains. So the villains resort Uh to their underhanded tactics. Now they weren't coming in with foreign objects or anything like that, but they were doing the subtle things that villains do that are Mm -hmm. such lost arts today. Oh yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: And you know, you got to remember Jack, we've talked before on, on the a one podcast that I've told you how I've heard the stories of Jack was just tired of being the world champion and, and basically called the office and said, that's it, I quit, I'm not leaving the state of Florida. And they thought he was kidding, but he wasn't. And, and he, he yeah. this was kind of a resurgence for Jack. He, my understanding was that Jack had come back, you know, several years earlier than this to give Jerry a chance to get some shine, and that's why they formed the tag team. Was that the way you understood it too, Mike?
4: Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And, and you know, Jack, Jack was one guy, though, when he did retire, that was it. You know, he oh, never yeah, came back. But he was tired of the schedule, and you know, even as world champion, I think that really kind of took a little steam out of him. People don't realize how how rigorous it was to carry that NWA World Title belt back right. then. I mean, right. it was it was it was you were on the road 365 days a year, and, all over the uh, world. A lot of guys just couldn't do it. That's why I always said that I don't think there was a greater world championship reign. Um, than the one held by Dory Funk Jr. for four and a half years.
2: Oh yeah, from I mean, the late sixties to, to about, early seventies. Yeah.
4: Yeah, sixty nine through seventy three. Just think about four and a half years of being on the road every day, and mm. you know all of the travel. And then when you were champion back then, uh, you know a lot of those matches were were broadways. Sometimes you went forty five, sixty minutes. Sometimes you went an hour and a half. And to think about that today, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely mind blowing.
3: Yeah, but yeah. you
4: know, Jack was one of those guys who was a, a great NWA World Champion. But when it was time for it to end, he he was more than ready, and he never looked back.
2: You know, and he's one of those guys that I don't think a lot of current fans appreciate enough. Uh, it, it, I was I was very small, so I don't remember Jack's reign. But I I, I came into watching wrestling right after that. But I yep. had enough family members and friends that were older. You know, and I I look back and I can see, I mean, he kind of looked a little bit like Joe Namath with the hair, who of course was a sex symbol at that time. And he had the great build and the tan because of the, you know, the Native American uh, ancestry. And he had this, the figure four, which is when done right is always a cool looking move. He was everything you'd want. And he had the the, the pedigree from Oklahoma state. He had everything you wanted in a world champion at that point. You know, he He
4: was, he was, he was a prototypical all American boy. yeah, Uh, Yeah. You know, when he came into Florida and Eddie Graham brought him in. He was, he was a matinee idol, you know, the good looks, the good body, the, you know, the, he had, he had all the goods and, um, uh, fans absolutely loved him. But, you know, the thing about Jack, he never was like a workout freak. Mm
3: -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he had
4: the body and everything and he could go, he had amazing cardio, but, you know, he never, like I said, he never was, you know, uh, crazy about, uh, you know, working out and, um, which is extraordinary to see, you know, to see him in the yeah. hour draws and everything.
3: <laughs> I,
2: but I, um, I think one of the one of the funniest pictures I've ever seen at one of the fan fest. Somebody had one of their scrapbooks, and it was a candid shot from the locker room. And it, I'm I'm guessing it was around the time of his world title reign.
3: Yeah, because it yeah. was a
2: black and white picture, and here it is: Jack Briscoe and no shirt, just sweatpants. His yeah. his cigarette hanging from his lips while he's doing jumping jacks.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking. <laughs> yeah. that, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Not the image you would think of. You know, when no. you think of Jack Briscoe. but that was Jack. You know, you he, know. He, he 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 lived life on his own terms, and uh, oh, yeah. when he you know he had an extraordinary career. But yeah, it was he wanted to leave. You know, prior to that, but like you said, he he kind of wanted to give Jerry a, a little more rub, and it's something they always wanted to do. Um, they had teamed up, of course, you know, prior to that, but they really got the big push in the Carolinas. And it, it took a lot of prodding by Jack and Jerry, mostly Jerry to, uh, get Jim Crockett to approve a baby, uh, a heel turn
0: because
4: Jimmy didn't think it would work. Um, uh, but I think what sold them, uh, Jerry and Jack both, uh, convinced him that they weren't going to change your wrestling styles. They weren't going to be what you think of as real heels. They were just right. going to work a lot more aggressively. And right. they also pitched the idea to Jimmy that they had the perfect team, the perfect opponents in, in Steamboat and Youngblood. Right. Slay, you know, they had just come off that big run with Sarge and, and um And I guess Jimmy thought about it and, and gave it the green light but it almost it almost didn't happen i mean i I remember jerry telling me that they had like probably half a dozen meetings um and they got ricky and jay on board as well and between four of them you know they finally convinced jimmy to to uh to
2: approve it well i mean it was it was i've said before an analogy i've always made and i've made it here on podcast before when wrestling it, there's not dissimilar from comic books in the sense that we've always had charismatic heels in wrestling. Mm-hmm. And the analogy yep. I make is the Joker, the joke is very charismatic and he he's popular with fans. So how yep. do you get fans to boo the Joker? Well, you got to have a, a hero. That's really, really cool. Like Batman to be his villain. Right. I kind of think that's an example here is you're going to have a hard time getting Jack and Jerry booed. Cause of what you're talking about, Mike, but you know, Jay and Ricky were so hot and they're, they were young right. and in their prime and good looking. So the girls loved them but they were tough enough that the guys respected them. That's the only kind of team you're going to be able to get Jack and Jerry boot. And and they did. And right. you, you see it in this match, you know, it, it, it's definitely like you said earlier, Mike, a time of true believers. And, and it you was. would be hard pressed to find any of those, you know, fifteen sixteen thousand 16,000 in Greensboro or all of us watching on, uh, you know, closed circuit, even those of us that were smart, going those guys are kind of really fighting you know i mean <laughs> that looked like yeah. it might have hurt a little bit you know so yeah. well you know the way they did
4: it too the way they turned heel was very uh ingenious as well i mean it, it wasn't real blatant but i think it happened like when jack accidentally injured steamboat's leg
2: right when right. he
4: fell on him while steamboat was in uh jerry's figure four leg lock right and you know, while it wasn't blatant, the fans kind of said, "Hey, you know, we're gonna." They they really blamed the Briscoes for for uh, injuring Steamboat, and but the Briscoes, of course, said, "No, nah, we didn't do it on purpose. It was just right. a great turn. I mean, they worked it to right. perfection."
2: And then I think by the time you got to the head of this, you know, and it came to a head at this match, you had kind of gotten the full-on evolution in the promos with the Briscoes of like, mm-hmm. you know, wait a second, they're jealous of us, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's always, always, if a heel can pull that off, it's always gold. It's money. So, yeah. yeah. And, I and you know,
4: me. that was, that was the most fun out of all of the, the great highlights in Jack's career, including world title reigns. Um, that was the most fun he ever had, you know, when, when, when he and Jerry teamed and had the tag team belts in the right. Carolinas.
2: And I mean, correct I mean, me if I'm wrong. Him. This yeah. was kind of the end of their run for both of them in ring. Uh, right. You know, this was kind of the end of the line, wasn't it?
4: Yeah. It, yeah. It was, it was, it was really close to, to the end. Um, uh, they, as far as Jack, you know, he, he had some, he did some more work in, in WWE, but, uh, I think it was maybe a year later and and Jack was like 43 years old and he was in a, a blizzard in, in Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I remember he told me, he said, I, I couldn't even feel my face or my hands. <laughs> it was not just it wasn't just the cold weather. It was that I was I was just mentally and physically exhausted. Right. And um he decided right then and there to call it quits and he he caught the next plane south and, and that and that was it. He never wrestled again. He hmm. he told me our memory jokes, he said he said, Man, I just went home and thought out. And That was it. <laughs> yeah, I he think he came
2: back. Acclimated to Florida by that point, And then the North just wasn't doing it for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He did
4: not like it up North. No way.
2: <laughs> well, I have to ask you why we got you on here. And yeah. I, I think it's one of those. What ifs all wrestling fans like to do. Yeah. After, after this match, what if we hadn't tragically lost Jay so young? What did you, what did you see as the ceiling for, for Ricky and Jay as a team? Do you, did you see the eventual split up in the feud or do you think, and I say this, because when I really got into wrestling, do we even see a Ricky and Robert? You know, do Punky and Hoot become what they become a few years later in this yeah. territory? If Mark and yeah. I mean, sorry, if 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 Jay and, and Ricky are still on top, do you follow where yeah. I'm going with that question?
4: What, yeah, what I see? know exactly. I know exactly where you're going. And you know, yeah, I mean, it, it, as influential as they were as a team, and they were one of the hottest babyface teams in the business. You know, real honestly, uh, by that time, uh, Ricky was was actually getting a little tired of, of teaming with Jay. Yeah. yeah
3: I, I and sure and I
4: think he's, I think he's mentioned that as well on a few occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I remember he told me, he said, I was just tired of being a babysitter, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think and I and I that's, think that's I think how, how it's you know,
2: documented. So yeah, I can yeah, see that.
4: Yeah. That, that's how it kind of was. So, you know, I, I don't really think that would have, um, I don't think they would have gone on much longer as a tag team regardless.
2: I, and what. I always, I always thought it was weird as a fan, and then especially once I became a worker and, and that, you know, Ricky had had such a hot run as a singles in the seventies yeah. leading up to this, why he wouldn't go back, you know? And, uh, I mean, it wasn't long after this it was about, I mean, I know he wrestled totally at the next arcade, but it was maybe yeah. what a year, year and a half later, he went up North to work for Vince.
4: Yeah. Yeah. With the dragon gimmick.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh.
4: Yeah. Ricky was, uh, he was destined for world championships.
2: Oh yeah. Know. Without question.
4: And as good of a tag team guy as he was, I mean, you know, uh, you you've seen him many times. He was uh, he was just he was super in the ring as a singles. He, you know, he, there's he, nothing
2: Ricky Steamboat ever did in the ring that didn't that looked bad ever that I ever saw. No, and I've seen it, it was thousands really of Steamboat matches.
4: Yeah, absolutely, it, it was flawless. You know, and
2: greatest uh, arm he drags picked. in
1: all of history, in oh, my opinion. Yes,
4: yeah. without question. Yeah, 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 yeah. Him and Flair, you know, you couldn't get any better than that. Um, uh, only be co- only to be compared
2: with Funk and Briscoe, right, right, right. Well, I, I just I, I had to ask you since we had John, you know, I've always wondered that, you know, and, and, and wanted others' opinions, and you seem to be in the same mindset some of the boys are, you know, because yeah. I Wahoo had told me that Susan Green yeah. had told me that, even Ricky himself, I think, had mentioned one time when I talked to him in the locker room, he was like, "Yeah, I was kind of getting tired of tagging." You know
4: yeah and yeah and he wasn't being Rick, rude would,
2: about it he no no, resolved.
4: no and, and he and he kind of he kind of softened it for Jay as well, you know, he was right. tired of being the tag teams, but really, you know he was uh it, it was at the point where it wasn't really fun to to team with uh with Jay, and you know he loved Jay like a brother, but you know how those things can be
2: um <laughs> you fight uh, and, your brothers the there, hardest as much as you love them-
4: <laughs> exactly, and you know we've seen a lot of brother t- tag teams over the years and uh, they get tired of one another, you know, they really do at some right. point. So, and but another when they, were, when they were hot, they were hot.
2: Another interesting thing about, I always thought about this angle. Cause it was one of the hottest angles. Um, uh, you know, we've talked at length and you, last time we had you on, you even brought up the fact uh, yeah. that, you know, that this territory changed when George Scott got the book in 72. I think it was no doubt. from, from the tag. Yeah. yeah. 73 from the tag team to the singles. Well, this yep. was kind of a resurgence of the tag teams in this territory, and it kind of stayed that way because of you know Ricky and Robert and, and the Midnights mm-hmm. and the Road Warriors Midnight, coming in.
3: Yep, yep.
2: And and it, it, still we had Flair, we had Dusty, so we had you know top top guys in this territory. But yep. I think we saw a resurgence with this. Well, yeah, with Sarge and, and Kernodal against them, but then this feud as well with 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 Jay and Ricky, and so this kind of became a uh, became a, a hotbed for tag teams once again. Do you agree with that yep. summation, Mike?
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it did. I mean, look at the tag teams, that, you know, that came in Rock and Roll, Midnight Express, Road Warriors. Um, it was sort of the best of both worlds. You know, he had the classic singles matches, and along with these uh, these feuding tag teams. So,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, I
4: mean, it was uh, you couldn't get much better than Mid Atlantic during that period, and I think no. that was part of the reason of the success of the Star Cates. But you had you had all of these guys. All of these top guys want to be part of the show and part of the territory and right. it was just you know It was a magical time in pro wrestling. It really
2: was it sure was and and I think fans don't understand and and is that? This you talked about how how it was, they really went out on a limb on this show and for King yep. 83 Business was kind of down in this territory at that point. It was was you know, Dallas was hot Memphis mm-hmm. was, was hot mm-hmm. The Carolinas were kind of down. This was kind of the beginning. Starcade really did kind of light a, a fire under the collective rear ends of this territory. Oh, uh, you it, know. It, it
4: it caught on fire, yes, absolutely. With with this success, Jimmy Crockett, you know, they just uh, well. I think if I'm not mistaken, they um, they were so excited about the crowd and and everything that had gone on up until that event. That they actually sold um, advanced tickets for the next year's Starcade at the first show, and I, I believe they sto- wow. sold like a hundred thousand dollars worth of tickets for I heard that
2: story too shows. yeah, yeah, yeah. Was like, they're announcing i don 't know if it was intermission, maybe it was like you know Tom Miller, who was the. The yeah, voice yeah. of the Greensboro Coliseum gets uh, on the house mic and says, "Now stop by the box office on your way out yeah. for next year because they were, we, and we know because as you watch, as you go back yeah, and watch yeah. the video, Dusty's there. Yeah. They're setting it yeah. up for the next year. Uh-huh. That, that's that's blows my mind. Other than WrestleMania, which sells as an event, not as much as a wrestling show anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. that people would spend that kind of money a year in advance. That's that's a lot of you, of positive." attache with your fan base now isn't it <laughs> i think
4: that's when they knew that this thing had a chance this thing had a really chance and 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 wrestling was going to move in a new direction they knew they had a winner here you know and um it, it was such a big event on so many levels but uh, man it really did open the way for for uh wrestlemania
3: it, yeah that's, it really that's, did. that's for sure
2: that's for sure. Well, I mean, I guess we we only have you for a little bit longer, so I don't want to gonna want to lose you, Mike. Without talking about the big match, I think oh, one yeah. that will always stand to the test of time, and that of course was the main event, the first time that the uh, NWA World Title had ever changed hands inside a cage mat inside a cage. That would be Nature Boy Ric Flair against yeah. uh, seven times champion Harley Race. What are your memories of this match? I'm sure you probably have some really fond memories because I know you and Rick are friends. Yeah,
4: and to this day, it's, you know, certainly it wasn't, uh, you know, maybe on Rick's list of his uh, best technical, you know, uh, 90-minute draw or, you know, a match that went the distance with Steamboat. But this is absolutely, you know, toward the top of his list is one of the most important matches in his career, because you know, had had this not gone down, I mean, you know, Rick was had had been a one-time champion up until then. You know, he would won the title from Dusty a couple of years earlier. I think, in it, I think it was eighty-one. In,
3: yeah, Kansas eighty-one. City.
4: Yep, yep. And, and you know, the Rick was still you know fairly young in the business. In and and a lot of people questioned. Well, you know, does this guy deserve to have a title that's been held by? people like you know uh, jack briscoe dory funk harley race and he really wanted to prove himself and i think this is a match that really put rick on the map mm. uh, winning the title from harley race it's such a big event and um yeah it was, it was just it was monumental um for rick's career it really it, it set him on a path of you know uh all those future world championships and mm. it was uh uh, it it was it was just
2: it was huge. Yeah, I don't think a lot of the newer fans understand that. It's because they they know Ric Flair, the Ric Flair. You know, they yeah, don't understand that right. at this time point, even though he had been a world champion for a lot of fans in other territories outside of the Carolinas and Georgia, and maybe Dallas because he was big in in, in Dallas with for Fritz. Yeah. Yeah. That that they oh he's not really a world champion. They saw Harley Race as a world champion. So like you said, yeah. beating him in a cage, that yeah. kind of solidified, oh, this guy is legit. This guy is a real world champion. And, and I, know.
4: We we knew he was a world champion. We knew he was world championship material. I, You know, because I talked about it with some of the guys. I remember uh, back as early as 75, 76, talking to some of the, you know, the uh, the office people down here, mm-hmm. and we were talking about, you know, who would be the next big deal in wrestling and world champion, and, and I think everyone agreed it was flair, and that was like six or seven years earlier. Right. So it, right. it, it, the people in the Carolinas who followed it, it, it wasn't a big surprise. We we knew he was going to be huge in the business, but like you said, outside these ter- you know, the the immediate territories, um, Rick was a star, but he was maybe not on the same list as guys like Funk and Briscoe and um, Harley Race and. Uh, you know, even Thesz and those guys, he was right. he was more. You know, they considered him more as a regional type of uh, attraction. Mm-hmm. But this made this legitimized Ric Flair in the yeah. eyes of a lot of uh, wrestling people. Back yeah,
2: I, I've been fortunate enough to have a few conversations with with Champ, and he expressed to me because I asked him about this match. Yeah. I think he felt, and I don't want to speak for for, for Flair. He speaks well well enough for himself, <laughs> but he intimated to me. That he thinks that maybe some of the boys and mm-hmm. definitely some of the regional promoters didn't see him that way and, and that Harley would do the honors for him this way and the kind of performance he put in kind of changed their minds. So I, I don't think you can underscore how much this this, like you said, meant to flair. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's what he intimated to me, at least, you know, yeah, uh, not just in the fans true. eyes, but in the boys yeah. eyes, too, you
3: know.
4: It did, it did, and you know, you could tell the emotion, you know, uh, leading up to it, and especially after the match, it was like, I made it, you know, I yeah. could see that, knowing Rick as I do, I could see that in his eyes, I finally made it, you know. Yeah, and,
2: uh, and the, the, the the post-match promo, where his face is covered in blood, and yes. Mosca comes in, puts him on his shoulders, <laughs> right. that probably, and, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn, uh, to use a modern term. That might oh. be the first recorded shoot promo we've ever seen, because that was really <laughs> from that, Rick's heart. You know
4: that that, that was, and and back <laughs> then, you know, that's thirty four years ago. I mean, people can still watch that today and say, God, you know, what a he had it back then. I mean, he oh, really yeah. did. Yeah, um, yeah. And having having Gene Kaniski sort of a special referee
3: mm-hmm. that even
4: legitimized it more, even though Gene was not you know a seasoned oh, yeah. referee by any stretch. Just to have his presence in that ring at the time, mm-hmm. that was sort of, that symbolized something
0: too.
2: Yeah, and know, even, uh, the, even the finish they did. And I've heard modern fans complain, you know, where he tripped over Koniski on the crossbody. You gotta understand, this is a different era. They're giving Harley yeah. an out, you know? Yeah. It's Harley Race. Yeah. You have to give Harley an out. Because yeah. even though Harley was pretty much done after this, I mean, he had the short run with Vince, you know. Yeah. But uh, he, he, he's still Harley Race. He's still, I mean, it, it is what it is.
4: Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, the match almost didn't happen. I'm sure you know that story
2: where Oh, uh, Harley's Ben's, told Ben's me that story. Harley, Harley Harley's yeah, told yeah. me his side of that
4: story. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, but being the, you know, being the, um, being the professional that Harley was, mm-hmm. you know, much to his credit, he he didn't take the offer, and it, and he had that much respect for Rick not to do that. Right. And I think that's why Rick has always held Harley in such high esteem.
3: Sure, you know,
4: in in Rick's book, I mean, Harley is right there at the top of the list. You know, got oh, yeah. this guy around, and and uh, we don't have to say too many good things about Harley because everyone knows him. And um, but you know, he he owed a lot to Harley, and he never forgot it.
2: I met Harley Race for the first time at his own home in, in Kansas City before his right, health was yeah. ill in 97. Yeah. And yeah. here I am, a, a 26-year-old kid, and he still uh-huh. terrified me. He still terrified me. You he know. terrified <laughs> me. Yeah. I, 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 I walked up to him, and I'm going, this is Harley Race, and I'm at his house having barbecue. Don't screw this up. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Even the interview that uh, Shivani has in the beginning where Harley's in the plaid suit uh, oh yeah! J- just leading into that, just the look on Harley's face. I'm just watching this on on my computer screen, and I just want to put my hands up and slowly back away and
3: turn around. <laughs> I mean,
2: yeah. the, the the stories are legendary, but they're legendary for a reason because they happened. I mean, it's it's Harley yeah. Race. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I I think this match, and, and I know it seems because we have so many gimmick matches nowadays. Uh, it, it is it is amazing to think that for as rich and long a history as pro wrestling had at that point, this is the first time the world title changed hands inside a cage. You know? That's yeah, kind well, of a you significant
4: know, A lot of guys back then, especially a lot of NWA world champions, particularly when Sam Mutchik was head of that. Um, oh, yeah. You know, That wasn't their style. Kinda. No, no. It, you know, you thought of classic world title matches. You know, Luth you would has. never see.
2: Yeah,
4: yeah. You. you <laughs> I'll, I don't know if I've told you guys this, but uh, since we mentioned cage matches and world champions, uh-huh. um, this was a conversation I had with Lou probably a year or two before he passed, and
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, I'd always wanted to ask him this question and never got around to it. But I I remember a match I attended at uh, Great Show Outdoor Show under the Stars in Savannah, Georgia back in back in the early seventies. Um, mm-hmm. I think they had every world champion on the show. Dory on down, and Lou was in a match. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen Lou in a cage match. Lou was in a cage match with Paul wow. DeMarco. Yeah. Wow.
3: A, 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 <laughs> a
4: cage, you know. And I always thought, gee, you yeah, know, this is kind of beneath Lou, you know, to be in a in a cage. But it was a cage match with Paul DeMarco, and it was a it was a bloodbath. Um, wow. And I asked Lou about that, and and he said, nah, God, I don't remember that. And I said, Yeah, you know, you were in it, Lou. Um, and and it really kind of. You know, I don't know if he actually did, didn't remember. I, I pro- he probably, he said, I he said, if I did, I probably wanted to just get it out of my mind.
3: I don't remember <laughs> that. And,
4: and I kind of thought that was funny because, yeah, you know, I, sort of, I, I thought it was really unusual at the time. He said, man, he said, I, I can't believe it. It must have been barbaric, you know. Um, that's like going back to the Roman gladiator days. I can't imagine doing that. I said, "Well, you, you know, you, you kind of did it," but he said, "Man, I'm, I'm glad I don't remember that." <laughs> but see, I, that was there. That you know, you didn't see a lot of the classic world champions back then participating in cage matches, no. and such, especially for a world title. But um, to me, I just think that sort of added to the allure of the whole match in '83
0: between.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think that. I think it was so perfect because of the build-up for that match. We, we, it's it's a running gag uh, on our sister podcast, A1 Wrestling, uh, that the the you know to take the damn money promo that that Harley cut. That to me is one of the five greatest promos ever cut in wrestling. <laughs> You know when he calls out all the heels and tells them to take the damn money. That's just <laughs> yeah. that was classic. I mean, because yeah. he just looks so scary and mean in that. You are like, if this guy has to pay somebody to beat somebody up, how bad is this guy? He's got to pay, it? <laughs> you know. And then and then when 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 Slater and or- Orton, you know, they they cash in on it, and then the uh-huh. comeback with Flair with yeah. the metal bat. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. that to me, if you want to know what quote unquote Southern wrestling booking is, to me that's there like. You go. That's, that's it. That's it. it. That's what we had here in the Carolinas, which is why when we first got Vince's stuff, we're like, this is wrestling. This is a joke. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, there's four things that
1: I wanted to bring up here. Uh, We we actually touched Mm -hmm. on a couple of them before, but I think the reason I'm just watching this as a a fan and trying to think, you know, why, why would they do this? I think the reason they chose somebody like Gene Kaniski to be the referee is because this is a guy that wouldn't be bullied by the other wrestlers you know he right, he's not going to take a a bump because somebody charges into him. You know, he's not going to be knocked <laughs> yeah. out.
2: He's um, not going to be Tommy Young. <laughs> right. Right.
1: But uh <laughs> second is Flair's infamous climb to the top rope where, you know, 99% of the time he takes the uh, it, I know, you know he never gets yes,
4: he never hits it. Yes. yes. I, I think that would, that would be I think that would be the big takeaway for any current <laughs> fan watching that match. My God, he hit he hit it off the top rope. And, he
2: won and, the uh, belt <laughs> off the top of the. He, he won, won the
4: belt r- off the top rope. <laughs> so you know, no wonder he kept using that after all those years. <laughs> he knew he could do it. You know, yeah,
2: I, I know Flair said Sean called his retirement match, but they did that spot. You know that's yeah. why Sean put that spot in that match. He's like, oh, i got to get a little wink, wink to the – I mean, because it's such an iconic part of Flair's career.
3: So.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. I, I, I was used to ask Rick, you know, why don't you do one of those moonsaults off the top, you know? Like, <laughs> all the... And, and Rick, Rick said, what do you mean? I do it all the time off my diving board.
3: <laughs> if I could do that,
4: no problem,
2: all... I do
3: that all the time.
2: Rick told me one time, he said, hey, kid, how many times have you – he you see seen lots of my matches. I said, yes, sir. He said, how many times have you see me throw a drop kick? And I said, never that I can remember. He goes, there's a reason why. <laughs> 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 Which is, uh, I love Rick Flair. <laughs> oh, gosh. There's nobody like him. Yeah.
1: But the uh, the third thing is the grand celebration at the end. You know, we were talking about it where Angelo's oh, yeah. got got him up on his shoulders and uh, everybody's cheering. And, and the celebration yeah. goes on for several minutes and you get the promo. That's one of the many lost arts. That That's something I think is is missing in some of the major shows. And I don't yeah, know how well yeah. it would work in 2017, but certainly for its time, that actually probably made the match more memorable than the match itself.
4: Yes, it did. And, you know, I don't know why they they don't do it nowadays. Um, maybe it's because they, uh, the fans have been totally re-educated and it wouldn't mean that much. And, you know, they do it a little, you know, I've seen WWE do it a few times, even like with Bayley when she won the title, Mm -hmm. you know, really kind of uh, looks like heartfelt emotions. But I think at this point fans are so wise to everything that they kind of see right through it. But back then, I mean, it, it really, it really meant something. And that was probably one of the most important elements of that match uh, if if they would have just ended the match with Flair winning the title and you know that was it, yeah. it would have still been memorable. But I think as many, I think more people remember the post match than they do the actual match. They'll right. never forget the iconic images of Big Nasty picking Nate up on his shoulders and <laughs> parading him around the ring, yep. and and Beth coming in, you know, yeah. and Rick giving her a kiss. And you know the thing with Rick, it's real. You know, he said it many times. That's real. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. real deal coming from Nature Boy, and I think fans felt that. Um, well, yeah.
2: You know, Seth, you've always said, you know, part of the reason you love old school wrestling is because it was presented on the real, like you know, mm. as everything like a, was a shoot. like it was a sport, and, yeah. and, and this is part of what added to that. I think that feeling, and and the whole show was like that. It was presented as a legitimate sporting event, similar to a World Series game or a Super Bowl or an NCA Final Four. You know, and and, and so I have, I have to ask you before we lose you, Mike. Yeah, you weren't writing your wrestling column until a few years later on a on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. On a weekly did you, basis, correct? Did you cover this low? Did it, did you actually get like an article in the the Post Courier because f- it was such a big deal, or, or or not?
4: Yeah, I got it in somewhere. I I don't know if it was for a magazine or you know uh, it's. 34 years ago, so much. Yeah, I know, was I understand. Foggy, but I actually, I did write about it, and, and it could have been for a magazine, it could have been for the paper, because so I would slip in articles every once in a while. Um, I remember uh, pretty close to then, I did a huge um, front-page spread on Wahoo McDaniel, and people still remember it. I mean, it was, a, it was a massive in-depth piece on Wahoo with a bunch of photos and stuff, you know. So, um, you know, I was covering it like that back then, but... Um, I mean, it was a big enough deal where it, it was, it was worth coverage, you know, by mainstream media, even back yeah,
3: then.
2: Yeah. Cause I, I remember, you know, with us having the house shows every Monday night up here in Greenville. Uh, we have, of course, Greenville news is our paper newspaper up here. Mm-hmm. They would have the results of the matches on Tuesday <laughs> of the show from Monday night in the <laughs> sports section. It was a, you know, I, I know the fans nowadays are like, Oh my goodness, WWE's in bed with ESPN. And that's been a big deal the last year or so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think the fans understand unless you grew up in the territories. Yeah, any of the territories back in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, and how it was presented in the Fabe days. I don't think you yeah. understand. It was a big deal, and that when it made regular press, that was a big deal. You know, and, it was. I mean, it really,
4: it really meant something. Now I know back at the paper as early as you know, back in the '70s, um, if we didn't get the results of the local Friday night matches in the paper on Saturday morning, we'd get a hundred calls. Really? Um, oh yeah, yeah. We would get the match results from every Friday night show, and they'd be in Saturday's paper. Yeah. Where
2: did where did where did Crockett run in Charleston? Did he run Gilliard or did he run McAllister?
4: Um, for the Starcade. Uh, no, no, event, for, or, for, for
2: for the regular oh, weekly, weekly the house shows.
4: Uh, County Hall, one thousand King okay.
2: Street. I got you. storage okay.
4: storage structure. We, oh no, I, I was born in Charleston.
2: I know exactly what you're talking oh, about. Yeah. Oh
4: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One thousand King Street. That was place. You know, from Elvis to. Uh, rock and Roll Review, the Harlem Globetrotters, the pro oh, wrestling, yeah. Yeah, everything. Well, one Harlem was auditorium.
2: one Harvard Globetrotter. Since Crockett was booking them too, but anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And we had
4: Henry Marcus as a local promoter who was a great guy promoted right. here for you know almost half a century. But yeah, of course yeah, we you know, we had Friday Sandy. Night.
2: We had Sandy Scott up here, of course, but yeah.
4: Another great guy, and Sandy worked in the office here too during the uh, yeah uh, yep. the ladies up until up until the time that uh, Crockett sold out to Turner. Yeah.
2: Well, I I know that you're getting you you're getting short time. You got other things to do, but we really appreciate you coming out and talking to us about what I think I, is I, one I of the most it. important I enjoy, shows.
4: I, I well, enjoy talking to you guys. You guys are so knowledgeable and and you know um, not a lot of guys out there now that can go back to those
2: days. It's all of them were such vivid. Yeah. Now I believe your wife just had a birthday. Is that correct, Mike? She did, actually, uh, just a few days ago. Yeah, right. Well, happy, well let her know from us. Happy belated Thank birthday. And, and, and I will. We are always honored to have you on, and we appreciate it so much. And and you have a, a good one, and we will catch you down the road, I guess, brother.
4: <laughs> I look forward to it, my friends. Bye-bye. So there you go, folks.
1: A complete rundown of one of the most historic nights in wrestling history, the original Starrcade. And thanks once again to Mike Mooneyham. You can find his Twitter at By Mike Mooneyham. That's... Mooneyham is spelled M-O-O-N-E-Y-H-A-M. I can be reached at Seth at a1-wrestling.com. The Twitter is at A1W Podcast. Facebook is at A1 Wrestling. Train, you can be reached at underscore JB on Twitter, correct? That is correct. If there's anything that is a classic wrestling memory to you, if there's any era, any promotion, any wrestler, promoter, personality that you'd like to hear us talk about, here on classic wrestling memories let us know at any of those social mediums and uh, train anything else you want to say before we close up shop
2: no but i'm just looking forward to continuing to do this podcast this is what i wanted to do this is what made me want to become a wrestler and quite frankly i really only know the mid-atlantic territory from the 70s and 80s so i'm going to enjoy doing some of these other things uh i i you know i've had a a friend already asked me, why don't y'all do a show about Lou Albano? Well, I don't know that much about Lou Albano, so I might look, enjoy doing a show about him, just doing the research alone. Or, or you know, uh, I've had a friend ask me, well, can you do something about, you know, Lou Cez's reign? Well, I know a little bit about Lou Cez, but I'd like to learn more. That's the kind of stuff we want to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. All right. With that said, we are going to close up shop. We'll talk to you folks again next time here at Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.